The best rugby insight and analysis. OTB Sports Rugby. When you watch a guy, Ger, standing on the sideline counting players with his fingers, you know this is bullshit. Probably the greatest ever victory for Ireland. Subscribe to the rugby stream on the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM. With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. It's half past seven. You're very welcome along to Thursday's OTB AM. It's Owen here with you right the way through until 10 o'clock. And we're joined in studio for today by Dan MacDonald of the Irish Independent. We're also going to be speaking this morning to Irish sailing sensation Eve McMahon. She's going to join us in the line very shortly. We're also going to be talking to Tommy Gorman ahead of a massive night for Sligo Rovers in Europe. And Clive Allen is going to help us look ahead to the Premier League as well. And our next episode of You Had to Be There is coming up in our middle hour this morning with Dan picking his top five performances he's ever seen in the flesh. You can tweet us at Off The Ball. You can comment on the YouTube stream if that's where you're watching us this morning. Dan MacDonald, how are you getting on? I'm good, on. How are you? Very well. Uh, I guess as far as a night goes in Europe, the fact that we've got now three big competitions in Europe means that volume-wise we're getting bigger nights than ever and tonight is going to be one of those for, for the Irish teams for sure. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, he kind of, you know, Shamrock Rovers were always probably going to be going at this stage, but I think the other two, Sligo Rovers and some Pats, the fact that they're involved adds something to it. It's the same as this this time last year. There was three teams going, and it was Dundalk and Bowes and Shamrock Rovers, and um, Dundalk and Bowes went out valiantly at, at this round, and possibly shouldn't have in some ways, you know, against Pauk and, and Vitesse, but they had to play extremely well to to be competitive and it feels like it's probably similar again I mean you know Sligo Rovers play Viking and Norway who are decent side and, and Pats play in Seska Sofia who are, who are pretty strong as well so the nature of it is that basically you know the domestic champion who is Shamrock Rovers go into a, end up in a slightly easier route you know playing other champions generally of teams that have been knocked out of the Champions League um, and that's why their, their opponent Shupi of, of Macedonia on paper North Macedonia on paper aren't as intimidating whereas the, the non-champions have to play non-champions from other countries but stronger leagues and, okay. that, and that's effectively why you can get through around a second round like you have to you know, beat a team like Motherwell or Mura from Slovenia who are pretty good but then you go up a level again and it's really hard for those clubs but in some ways they've they've you know the second round is like their cup final you know in terms of even financially and stuff like the you know Sligo Rovers have now made 850 grand Pats is 750 because they got a buy through the first round so they, they miss out just 100 grand less it's real bonus territory for them whereas the Shamrock Rovers one is different it's more failure if they don't get through this round or yeah. failure, failure if they don't make group stages so there's a the three clubs are naturally all grouped together as you do but there's almost like a one and a two you know in terms of of, of where they are in terms of expectation and and realistic chances of progression I suppose and is the hype building around Rovers that this could be a historic European odyssey it's funny like uh, not especially um but I, it'll grow. It's we were just out there yesterday, the, the Shamrock Rovers press day, and like, the Shamrock Rovers crowds this year have been pretty good, and they're they're growing. And even last week when they played Ludogorets in that Champions League, sort of not dead rubber because it wasn't, but like they were three 0 down. So in many people's eyes, it probably was, um, and they still got whatever like six and a half thousand people still went to Tala, uh, and they gave it a right go. Like they 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 were still alive going into injury time, mm. um, but it was still a game going into it. You were like. I didn't have the feel that day of it as a big game on tonight because you're thinking, oh, it's 3-0, this is game over. Whereas tonight, 
is a bigger game. Yeah, I gather ticket sales are just a bit slower. I think right. it's it's in in people's eyes. Maybe it's like who are they playing Tuesday or so Thursday? Or should be in Macedonia. People know they have another game if they don't. Even if they lose this one, they have another go. And maybe it's not necessarily landing in people's heads that like this is a really, really big game. But if they can win this tie over two legs by next Tuesday, they're guaranteed group stage football till December, and they've got like three million sort of quid in the bank or whatever. And um, you know, it's one of the biggest games, biggest ties in their in their history, realistically. But because the opponent isn't a team like even CSK Sofia or you know the you know, a more higher sort of grade team that you know maybe the, the message is slower to, to sink in with people of like how important this game is and maybe there'll be a big walk up crowd later and it'll be the same sort of crowd they've had but no the hype probably hasn't built to the extent but you know maybe that's no bad thing so should be not doing it for the people of talent no they're not like it's not the neutralism sort of thinking um Oh, this is a game. This is a game necessary that you you have to see. Yet it's a, like it's it's as important as it comes. Really, um, you, you know, you speak to some of the players, and I, I sort of know some of the older players in the Rovers dressing room, and like they're at the, some of them are at the stage of their lives. I think Gary O'Neill actually spoke about this a couple of weeks back. Uh, fellow Kerry man, of course, who who basically said when when Shamrock Rovers got AC Milan a couple of years ago, he was sick. You know, and everyone would naturally assume dream draw amazing all he was thinking was I've never played in the group stages uh, and we're basically gone now playing AC Milan as much as you think yeah you can try and do a job on them and there was those 90 minute COVID games it wasn't two-legged they were really good at 2020 Shamrock Rovers you know you could argue you know have they even hit those levels you know since because um, Jack Byrne was amazing in 2020 and hasn't quite got back to that he might not even be fit to play again tonight what's his story yeah he's just been injured yeah, yeah and he's like, he could when, make the bench might make the bench but when you think that like at the start of the year you would have spoken about Rovers in Europe and Jack Byrne and the fact that they're in their fifth game tonight and he's played maybe 20 minutes off the bench in one of them so you haven't even seen the best of them yet but a lot of the players are now more obsessed about achievement than glamour that's for it's the about, fans really. yeah yeah, exactly and I mean the Milan game wasn't even for the fans ironically enough and it was, I mean it was a great buzz and a great story to tell in years to come he played against Latan, but part of them were thinking you know to talk about the group stages that year and Rovers were better than them. They're sitting at home, going, "What the, you know? What the hell's going on here?" So I think there's a, there's a couple of them there who are just like they don't care if it's low profile or you know the, there's no glamour in the ties. It's like just get 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 it done, get into the group stages, and then be in that draw, you know, in Switzerland or whatever it is at the end of August, that day where you have all the, the European draws. That's just where they want to be. So they don't care really who they play. I think in the intermediate, in, in, in the interest sort of the window to take them there. So you expect Rovers to progress? I think they have a really good chance in this tie. I yeah. think if they play as well as they can, I think they can progress. I, I sense a confidence off them. But the mad thing about it is, if they lose this tie, then they go into a two-legged tie with the champions of Kosovo or Faroe Islands. To, okay. to get into the group stages. Um, so they're probably weaker teams, even than the team they're playing. Uh, tonight and next yeah. week so that, that probably is factoring into the whole kind of hype around it maybe 100% yeah. I think there's a, that safety net is there mentally in some ways you know and then I'm getting the sense that uh, Sligo Rovers and St. Pat's possibly face uphill tasks yeah like, I don't want to be too negative about it because they've done incredibly well to get there but the fact is like you know, Sligo Rovers are mid-table Pat's are pretty much mid-table as well like you know League of Ireland teams to do well in Europe I would always feel need to be really strong like 
on form League of Ireland side and neither of those would meet that criteria at the moment um, so that's why it's incredibly impressive and encouraging that they've managed to negotiate their, their previous ties uh, and particularly like you know Sligo Rovers really sort of calculated against Motherwell after playing pretty poorly in the first round against the Welsh team um, but it, they are hard ones like uh, the, the concern about Sligo Rovers would be that probably an edge that you have at this time of year generally is that you're playing teams that are just coming out pre-season or a couple of you know a couple of games in um, that's not the case if you play a team from Norway they're mid-season and the Norwegian results in Europe this year have been pretty good like you see Bodo Glimt who Viking aren't a million miles behind the table I mean they Okay, they beat Linfield eight nil. There was a red card, but but last night they 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 won their Champions League tie five nil, um, and a couple of the other Norwegian teams have been doing pretty good. So they're mid season, mid flow. So that's a tough one. Um, the Pats one, yeah, Sesco Sofia are probably similar. They're they're not as good as Ludogorets, but obviously Pats aren't as good as. Shamrock Rovers, so you're trying to, you know, get a handle on the form there. But the Bulgarian clubs, like they're they're four games into their season, they score a lot of goals. Pats are a good side on the counter attack, and they have the capability, I think, to absorb some pressure and do well in the game. Um, but in saying that, they're right up against it. Yeah. Okay, uh, we will have more on Sligo Rovers this morning as well. It is seven thirty nine. You're with us here on OTBAM, which is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Coming up over the next little while, we're going to be joined by Eve McMahon to chat about her success this year in uh, her boat. Despite a leak in Houston last week, she has added another world title to her astonishing collection already. Tommy Gorman then is going to be our Sligo Rovers guest at ten past eight to talk about uh, their journey so far this season. Sports page is coming your way at half past eight, and then John. Logan's virtual insanity at 20 to 9. After that, then Dan is going to be running through his top five live performances he's ever seen in football. You had to be there, is our brand new slot, and it's coming your way at 10 to 9. And then Clive Allen will be with us at 10 past 9 to look ahead to the Premier League season. Is it something that excites you around this time of year, Dan, the, the Premier League? Or do you um, kind of wait for the, the European stuff to kind of wait? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not going to, I mean, I, I'm going to be in here talking about it on Saturday, but. Uh, it always, I think this year it's come a little bit earlier because of the, the Qatar thing that, that's going on later in the year. Obviously, that little thing, the World Cup, I believe it's known as. <laughs> um, but um, so it, it doesn't, it doesn't like, you know, I, I really love the European ties and I love that time. But I mean, it's not that, uh, it's not that I'm, I'm not enthused by it either. Um, it just sort of, as you know, and it's like we probably, everyone would have maybe these feelings around it particularly if you're maybe working around it like the Premier League news cycle you can both love it in a way but also so, feel a bit smothered by it sometimes too and what like, are you talking about yeah. there's just headlines about Cristiano Ronaldo <laughs> yeah. on the back page I believe, I believe Ronaldo has done you know, there's something happening with Ronaldo and Ten Hag it's like yeah, maybe it's just like you know the the Manchester United stuff in particular has been so exhausting in the last like period of time. Twenty years of the same. Yeah, and so there's that small bit of uh, not excited about some of that stuff. To be blunt, yeah. I got it. I could I could do without that sort of constant uh, post mortem of that in my life. But I'm very interested by the Haaland thing. Mm. You know, very interested by. Um, Nathan Collins Gavin Bazunu in the Premier League this year so there's loads of stuff there that I'm really, I'd be really sort of energised and, and looking forward to too 
but obviously you, it's the whole package with the Premier League like you get the whole the whole thing comes as one you can't, you can't yeah. just pick and choose yeah, yeah. Like, do you think we've bottomed out from an Irish perspective uh, in terms of our Premier League in, involvement like uh, you know like Nathan's always great for putting up the tweet at the end of the year about goal scoring yeah. and even Irish appearances at this point uh, in, in the Premier League do you think we're finally going to see uh, an uptick can it go up I mean it is pretty like I mean you realistically are looking at maybe eight players seeing minutes this year I think well no no, sorry that's wrong I think seven sort of players who are more senior players Evan Ferguson I would presume will, will, will be involved he was on the bench for most of the second half of last season albeit not necessarily when he got on once there are other younger players at clubs who might get minutes at later points of the season it could surprise me but that is low like that is, that is incredibly low um, and you sort of feel that um, with the age profile of some of the better younger players in, in the squad maybe it, maybe it's bottoming out but maybe it's also it's, 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 it's not far away from levelling off in some kind of place either like it, I think maybe there was a time uh, like the first this is obviously 30 years since the first Premier League season um, when football began in 1992-93 this reference point there was 32 Irish players that year um, at the end of every season in the last 10-12 years I would do a sort of a ranking of Irish performances across it, and everyone who played a minute sort of gets into it and there's been times in the last 10 years where even that's gone down to 24-25 um, then down to like 15 or there thereabouts to be thinking of a year where it could be 8 you know, okay. or, I mean, worst case could be six if Shane Duffy for some reason left Brighton, which seemed like Stephen Kenny was even suggesting the other day he thought that might happen at the end yeah, of the season. Yeah, it's not unthinkable. It hasn't happened. Um, so you feel like it'll get back up to 10, 11, 12, 13. You feel like the likes of the Norwich guys, you know, will, will get back there. You know, I feel like Jason Knight will probably get there at some stage. Um, so in some ways, the fact that the, it's mainly younger players in that profile uh, you think it will go up but um, the days of 30 32 they're not coming back no that's for sure a couple of interesting um, things to kind of talk about in, kind of in a wider context obviously Matt Doherty is going to be a Premier League player this season and, and kind of what maybe his his expectations are this season he's obviously got the highest ceiling in terms of yeah. an outfield player obviously you've also been kind of thinking as well about Aaron Connolly and, and, and his position mm. this season and even just um, Jamie McGrath's move is, is quite interesting Stephen Kenny was asked about him this week yeah um yeah, the Connolly one is is very interesting. You know, the the Venezia move. I mean, he's someone again. The Connolly when he scored those two goals against Spurs, what three years ago? Now you just assume he's going to be around for a long period of time. Although there would have been obviously concerns expressed then, maybe about. Um, it's been a big talking point around football and 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 like in Irish football. I think it will be well known in the last couple of years that Aaron Connolly. You know, there there would be complexities to the character you know some concerns I mean he was effectively not he was left out of Ireland under 19 squads um, you know due to probably some issues that there was there and maybe feelings around him there around the time of he scored that he made that Brighton breakthrough and that amazing breakthrough and then you're looking at the other side going yes you know under 19 management Tom Moe and people who are regarded they're not managers who sort of bomb people easily you know they maybe weren't mad at having Connolly around their squad um, and then Kenny Stephen Kenny brought him back to the 21s and they seem to have a good relationship and yet uh, unfortunately some of people's predictions about what might happen for Connolly sort of came through you know and he's given a very reflective interview last week where he's maybe spoken about acknowledging mistakes he's made and he needs to maybe live his life in a certain way and move out of a certain circle of friends that he had and you really just hope that the 
Penny has dropped with it. I mean, Kenny spoke about it this week. Um, and I, like he, he didn't want to go too much into it, but then he sort of, like, then he did back up things that Connolly said. Like, Connolly said, you know, Kenny had shown him a video along with Keith Andrews, who I think has a quite a decent relationship with, uh, with Connolly. And they showed him a video of him against Azerbaijan, and he was effectively walking you know walking around the pitch and I remember watching him in that camp and he physically wasn't at it and even Kenny just said Aaron Connolly used to be able to dribble like he used to be a dribbler that was one of his attributes and he effectively said he looks to have lost that element from his game Um, and that that tallies like Aaron Connolly was thrilling watching him play for the 21s a couple of times off the edge of your seat like uh, here he goes he might take off and do anything here and whereas last year it become sort of very inhibited, you watched him and stodgy. And Connolly has said himself, he was walking around the pitch and probably wasn't fit enough. Um, so it's not game over for him, but it's a sort of a crossroad season for him too. You would think that a player who was so exciting when he burst onto the scene, if he loses, in inverted commas, his dribbling ability, that's almost a good problem because he will find that back. Like that, that is, a you, you would think, a skill set slash confidence mm. thing. You would think so. I mean, Kenny's point would be that, that Connolly always saw himself as a number nine, or Connolly always spoke about that. And as a number nine at Brighton, a lot of what he was being asked to do was you know, he's a central striker as a number nine, make runs in behind, um, play on the edge of the shoulder, rather than being asked to sort of come out and take the ball and, and run at people. And it's true, like that skill set is there, but the slight fear is that he's lost that little bit of explosiveness that he had, that sort of burst. And you presume if he gets to like, he said that he's feeling fitter than ever and you know he's, he's, had a, he's had a pre-season now like he used to have four, five, six years ago. So we'll, we'll find out pretty soon on the pitch if, if that is the case um, and if he's sort of retained that. But um, there is always just that fear, you know, like I think for Connolly, like he got the... Like he 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 got to the top of the mountain. Like you know, there's such dedication involved to get to where he did. Yeah. Like you know, yeah, you can't get there without being having something like a real focus and something about you. But obviously, he got to the top of the mountain. He got the contract. You know, the big contract, which is always the the thing that the players are aspiring to aim. And then there's just been a a big drop off since then. So you have to sort of, I'd imagine that financially he's probably pretty fine now. Like he's on loan. Um, so you lose a certain drive I think you know to get to sort of a certain level um, and now he just needs to he, he's realised that okay well this could be my only like this could be my only big contract in a way he's not saying that but I think he would know after a couple of sort of you know an uninspiring loan and the fact that he's gone to Italy rather than say a championship club has fallen over themselves to get after him you know his Brighton contract will end eventually, and what he does now will determine where he goes after it. Yeah, it's going to be very, very interesting to see what happens this season with, mm. with Aaron Connolly in Italy. Just one other story we wanted to touch on this morning, Dan. Before uh, we turn to sailing this morning, is just the uh, situation with Live Golf. Yeah. Obviously, as a keen golf fan, you've been following this quite a bit. There's uh, talk of uh, Live going in for women's golfers, uh, which would certainly you would think be more of a threat even to, to their games and to the men's game. And then obviously the, the big news is that Phil Mickelson and Ian Poulter are amongst uh, the Live 11 who are uh, going to sue uh, an antitrust lawsuit against the PGA Tour to, to challenge their suspensions. Yeah, so it's, I mean, uh, this is like uh, sort of, you know, terms like sort of civil war and stuff get used in sport all the time. But I mean, it really is. This is cracked uh, badge territory. Uh, this, is, this is it. Like, But I mean, Poulter's involved in all of these lawsuits. He's yeah. everywhere. Poulter is, is sort of like one of these old 
WWE wrestlers who's like gone from the good guy into a heel <laughs> overnight. Like all of a sudden, like it's like Poulter is like has produced a steel chair, and everyone's like, you know, the the the, the Medina sort of focus and happiness and stare has suddenly turned into like someone staring deathly into the into the booing crowd, like he was in uh, St Andrews this year, where he's booed and he's like, I didn't I didn't hear those boos, and everyone's like. But you are being booed. It's fairly like, blunt writing this, from there. The, yeah. People at home are even stroking their chin, be like, "This isn't very real." Uh, yeah, this is like, what has happened? What has happened to this guy? Because um, it's noticeable that this this lawsuit thing. There's eleven players' names in it, but there's no Brooks Kopka in it. There's no Dustin Johnson. Um, this is more like it's like the fundamentalist wing of the Live Guys, you know. So it's got Mickelson, who's always been in there, like Pat Perez, um, who was going around with a, a an outfit a couple of weeks back with like dollar dollar notes <laughs> on his on his gear, and he's always been a bit of a he's always been a heel like yeah. in, in that sense and like Bryson is in there too but yeah the the the, the lawsuit the detail like golf.com had a pretty interesting piece if people want to learn more about it it sort of broke down sort of 11 things in the lawsuit and some great stuff in there just confirming Bryson had signed for live earlier in the year like back in February um, it goes into sort of uh, every it's quite interesting every quote that anyone has given in the last couple of years has been put in there so like Roy McElroy comments Davis Love comments various quotes from individuals Jay Monahan anything they've said it's been thrown in there to sort of uh, you know to, to 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 make the case of the guys who are, are claiming you know that, that their, their their freedom to trade or whatever has been restricted whatever way they're, they're referring to themselves they're, they're independent contractors you know this is what they are um, but there's just a lot more in there about um Augusta as well the information that apparently uh, in February 2022 Augusta National Representatives threatened to disinvite players from the Masters if they joined Live. Right. So there's a lot of like private threats apparently that have been made behind the scenes that have been brought to the top of the they've been they've been named in this sort of lawsuit here. So just a lot more stuff which is getting a lot more personal and it's getting a lot more there's a lot more mudslinging sort of going on here. Um and I presume there's gonna be I think there's been some kind of replies already from the the PGA Tour side, but there's going to be more. And what was interesting is that it, like a while ago Justin Thomas in particular was on this podcast, No Laying Up, the golf podcast, and he was particularly irate about the thought of the lawsuits like there's almost a sense that some of the players they can understand people going and taking the money yeah but they feel that if there's if they start to take lawsuits like you're I think Justin Thomas said you're actually suing us because the PGA Tour is technically some of the players on so you know you're suing me you're suing Rory you're suing us all um, but the the, the depth of stuff in that lawsuit um, and some of the allegations contained within it which are only allegations um it's not going to. It's not leading us towards a happy, con- you know, resolution no. and conclusion in sort of a, a month's time here or something. It's gone beyond mudslinging at this point. Like it's gone it's way not, beyond yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's going to be really interesting to see how that develops. So that's uh, the latest on the live golf saga at this point. It is uh, seven fifty-two. You're with us here on OTBAM, which has been brought to you live each morning this week by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Now we're delighted to be joined by Dublin sailor Eve McMahon, who arrived home this week after capturing gold in the single-handed IL. LCA 6 class at the 2022 ILCA 6 Youth World Championships in Houston, Texas. That was on uh, Saturday, just gone. So this gold is Eve's third consecutive gold medal this year, having also picked up a gold at the World Sailing Youth World Championships in The Hague and at the ILCA 6 Youth European Championships in Greece. 
By the way, you can visit uh, sailing.ie for all the latest in Irish sailing, including results and upcoming competitions and what a time it is at the moment for Irish sailing. Uh, Eve, uh, congratulations, first of all. How are you getting on? Thank you. Yeah, I'm getting on great. Uh, a bit of jet lag, but other than that, it's pretty much okay. I can imagine that it's uh, probably one of the, the easiest belts of jet lag to get over. Can, can you talk us through the event at the weekend and, and how it all played out for you? Yeah, absolutely. So I was kind of heading into Houston, Texas after just winning two gold medals. So there was a bit of pressure on myself. I was tipped as a favorite. So I was kind of just trying to shut that all off. And I just raced how I'd usually race and it it really did all pay off. So it was absolutely amazing to get the, the triple crown. When you get out there, obviously, there is a certain amount of the conditions that are completely out of your control. Uh, what was what were the conditions like in, in Houston and did they play in your favour or did you have a bit of work to do? Yeah, it was uh, quite windy, which I really, really like, especially for with sailing with the youth fleet um, and very, very choppy waves. So it was quite physically intense. Uh, and obviously, I'd just done two major events before, so I was quite tired, but I knew that it was kind of my last my last event so I just gave it my absolute all and, and pushed myself the whole way through Is that a common theme amongst all of the Irish sailors Eve that when you go abroad especially to some place across the Atlantic that you are hoping for windy conditions because it is sort of like your, your home your home place Yeah I suppose well we train out of Dunleary so we do get a, a mix of conditions but I think most Irish people their favourite conditions is a bit of wind we're, we're used to it Can you talk us about what happened to the boat? Yeah, that was actually surprising. Um, It was the fourth day uh, and I'm quite particular about all the equipment that I use because I I lost my youth Europeans last year due to um, gear failure. So I'm quite particular with all that kind of stuff. Um, And because we can't bring our own boats over to Houston, Texas, we have to kind of rent new boats. Um, And the boat that I had just had a slight defect in it. And on the fourth day, I came in off the water and there was actually water inside my boat. So it was a bit of a stress, a bit of a panic, but I was lucky enough to get it all fixed before I went out the next day. Right. Okay. I, I presume at that, at that point. So you, you had you had to race the entirety of day four with a leak in the boat. Yeah, I didn't know what was going on with it. To be honest, I felt slow that day, and I suppose that's why I felt a bit slow as well. Right. Okay. You would assume that that would be fairly terminal for your chances on a single day, but obviously it wasn't too bad. Yeah, no, I was going into the next couple of days a bit stressed because obviously you only can tell if there's water in your boat once you get in off the water. So uh, I was a bit stressed and well, I kind of just was like, you know what, I'm just going to race how I race. And if there's water in my boat, there's water in my boat. There has to be, I'd assume, a certain degree of what will be will be when you're going to these events, considering, as you just say there, you don't get to bring your own equipment. You are essentially dealing with something that you're not 100% used to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And we do it quite often because obviously we're living on an island here in Ireland. So it's much more difficult for us to bring our boats uh, internationally. So I am quite used to renting boats. um, But I think the defect was just because of the extreme heat over there that the boat, some of the stuff had actually the silicone in one of the joints had actually melted off with the heat. Wow, I hadn't even considered that. Like, so how hot was it? It was around 40 degrees. It was absolutely crazy. The first couple of days, you know, we had to really adjust to the heat because we were out in the water and our races are very, very long and very intense. So straight away, our heart rates were very, very high. So I I went out there around a week early just to get used to the jet lag and used to the heat. and, And thankfully I did. And how many of those, like, I mean, I suppose Netherlands is where you won one of your goals. Greece, obviously, I, I presume the temperatures weren't as high as they were 
in Texas. So have you gone on warm weather training camps before now, or was this your, your first time really being thrown into those specific conditions? This is in terms of humidity. This is my first time being at that kind of level of humidity. Greece was actually quite hot as well, um, but just not the level of humidity humidity that Houston was. Can you talk us uh, through what happened at Youth Europeans last year? Because you mentioned there that there was a, another gear de- defect. Yeah, so I was also renting a boat as well, um, and it was my first race. And the inside rivets of my mast, which you can't see. Uh, were all like rusted inside Um, and then the first race that I did I pulled on my kicker and my mask snapped so that was a very very unfortunate so my first race out of a 12 race series I had a DSQ which was like a disqualification because I never got to race the race oh god so that was just a crap boat they gave you last time yeah, basically, to be honest with you. But you know what? I think it's made me a much better sailor in general, just to be able to have that kind of experience and then just racing with knowing that you have a disqualification was, was quite tough, but I think it's made me into a much better sailor. And, and I'm sure that's something you can look back on now in hindsight and say that's that was a, a hugely constructive moment for me. At that particular moment, though, I presume that's not how you feel. Yeah, no, I wasn't too happy back then. But, you know, that's that was the point where I kind of made my goal for this year to, to be able to win all three and get the triple crown. But I obviously have my leaving certain there as well. So I was a bit nervous going into all the three events, but it did all pay off. Yeah, for sure. Um, the three events then this year, I mean, between Texas, Greece and um, the Netherlands, as I say, how different are all the courses on, on I guess, a purely tactical level? Yeah, no, they're all completely, completely different in terms of like land geographical effects. So, you know, I didn't get a lot of time in between each event because they were all so back to back. So I was kind of just flying from each country to the next, you know, with four four or five days of training just to get used to the conditions. And, and then I had to rest a little bit and then straight into the events. So they were very much back to back. So it was quite difficult to get used to each condition. And each condition was so different that, you know, you'd come off racing off one event thinking you'd know the conditions and then you go to a different venue and you get used to a completely new wave condition and, and wind condition. So that was quite tough as well. So you're basically, I presume, on the road straight after the leaving cert this summer. Yeah, I was I was absolutely gagging to get away. Like literally three days after, I was on my flight to Greece, getting ready, prepping for the youth Europeans in Greece. Right. Yeah. Like even I mean, a lot of people will just rightly or wrongly, a lot of sports fans in this country will, will tune in to sailing matters around the Olympics. That's just the the nature of it. But I was just I was interested to read that you were like Annalise Murphy has been the sort of the the flagship uh, person in that world in the last sort of last decade, and you were her training partner up to coming up to Tokyo and you've been sort of spending a fair bit of time with her so that must be sort of a terrific insight that you've you've gained yeah it was absolutely huge I joined her in Australia for the senior worlds and then we had a training camp in Lanzarote when the Olympics were postponed for one year and we just spent quite literally one year in Lanzarote and we teamed up with the Danish Olympic team. Um, so between Amory Rindon, the Danish sailor who won gold and then training with Annalise as well, you know, I was with the, one of the best training groups in, in the world. So that was quite huge for me. Mm. So you, uh, you, you're sort of, you compete in the same boat class as her as well, right? Like it's yeah. the same discipline as such. It's the, I know there's different grades, but it's the same one. 
Yeah, no, we we both well, we're both competing now in the in the Ilka Six Olympic class women's boat. So I'm in the same boat as she previously was. So it was amazing to be able to line up and compare speed and just get all the little nuggets of wisdom, I suppose, between the, the two girls. Hmm. Uh, that experience with the Danish team, is there anything they do differently or anything you learned that kind of blew you away a little bit? Um, not really. I think it was more just the humbleness of everybody around that training group, you know, really drawed my attention to them. Like they were just such a humble group of sailors and we all got on like like an absolute house on fire. So the entire training group experience and atmosphere was one of the best I've ever sailed in. So it was just really nice to be able to learn from the best. So it's almost kind of like a sports psychology aspect that they bring to things as opposed to anything they're doing differently in the boat. Yeah, absolutely. You know, sailing has so many different variables. So it's very much so you have to keep your mind in check all the time. You know, one little thing can go wrong and and you've, you've lost a lot of places in the race. So I think just learning, you know, and hearing their experiences and, and what they've been through and just learning how they dealt with it has been huge. That psychology piece is interesting because earlier on in this conversation, you mentioned that come the third competition this year that people knew you'd won two gold medals people had you marked out as the favourite potentially how has that mindset shift been from you going from one of the the people in the pack to to being a leader in in this sport yeah you know I I really do try to block all that out Um, and when I'm during in the event you know I just go into each race thinking it's a completely new race I don't I don't even look at results kind of during the event which is actually what a, a lot of sailors do and I just I just race how I would usually race, not thinking about anybody who's potentially, you know, a threat to me or coming second. So it definitely was big because I'd seen a lot of the stuff about and heard obviously from other sailors about, you know, I'd be getting text messages in saying I'm two from three, two out of three. So obviously then going for the three out of three. So that was quite tough, but I just kind of just kept my sailing completely simple and and tried to turn all that kind of stuff off. Okay, So so even in the middle of of an event that would be a couple of days long, you would not look at the results or try and block it out as much as possible yeah absolutely like the days are are six days long and you know one race starting over the line you know that can absolutely throw your events so you can't really get too ahead of yourself in sailing because one little mistake and it's all day in the tubes what happens next now Eve like where, where does the season go from here yeah, so I've kind of actually only just begun my summer, to be honest with you. So I have a little bit of rest now and I'm heading off then to the under 21 Worlds in August. Um, so that's like a little category stage up. But And then I have also then my senior Worlds back in actually Houston, Texas, and then the senior Europeans. But I'm quite comfortable sailing in all three categories because I've sailed in all three since I was 15. I really tried to get into the senior level at a very early, early age. So I'm quite used to to the senior level. And then, you know, it's just then trying to qualify for Paris as well. And then obviously you mentioned you've just done your leaving search. What's the plan on that front? Yeah, I get my results in a month's time. So I've kind of forgotten about that one, to be honest <laughs> with you. But I'm getting my results in a month's time. So I'm hoping for the best. And what what is the what is the hope college wise? Um, I'd love to go to University College Dublin. I was actually just I got the Ad Astra Elite Sports Scholarship, so that was huge. So I figured that out before I sat my leaving cert. So that was a little bit of pressure off, and you know it's an amazing amazing college. So I'm I'm really hoping that I'll be able to represent UCD. Good stuff. And can I ask, have you thought at all about Paris? Is is that something you can allow yourself to think about? 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, because I was a training partner for Tokyo, I always had my sights set, I suppose, on Paris and then LA as well after that. So that's what I, I do. I go out and train every day for Paris and I'm just very much so looking forward to hopefully qualifying. How competitive is that going to be within the Irish camp? Yeah, so at the moment, there's one other uh, sailor who I'll uh, try and compete against during the trials. Um, and then we have three, tr- we've qualified the nation first, and then we have three trials after that. So it is a, definitely a tough qualification, but I, I am confident in myself. Because essentially, it's teamwork to get Ireland into the Olympic Games, and then it becomes teammate versus teammate to see who actually wears the green of Ireland. Is that, is that correct in how, how the games would work? Yeah, exactly. So the qualifying the nation, you know, we have to, I think it's like top 50 or something at the World Championships. So it is a bit of a team effort, but in the other sense, we are also sailing for ourselves. Well, it's a a very, very good problem to have uh, over the the next couple of years, Eve. Congratulations on everything over the past few months and great to chat to you this morning. Thank you so much. Cheers. That's uh, Eve McMahon, Irish sailor there on the line. It is 8.06. You're with us here on OTBAM. It's Owen and Dan McDonald with you right the way through until 10 o'clock. Now, off the ball is going back to Vicker Street and it's in association with Cabri FC. We've got a massive roadshow coming your way on August the 17th where we'll have Michael Owen, Ian Wright, Emma Byrne and Karen Carney on stage. There should be some great stories on the night as four legends of the game reminisce about their careers and preview the 2022 23 season. This is an exclusive off-air event and tickets go on sale at 9 o'clock this morning across our social channels and a reminder that ticket proceeds will go towards supporting Irish women's grassroots football. Terms and conditions apply and see you on the night. Right, after this break we're live with the legendary broadcaster Tommy Gorman ahead of his beloved Sligo Rovers European Europa Conference League third qualifying round against Vi- their game against Viking this evening. Uh, first, <laughs> here are Joe and the lads on last night's Off the Ball talking about the sounds of sport that they love. Back after these. What is the best sound in sport? And he gives his top three. Mine. In at number three. See, I thought this was a ridiculous text until I read the top three and then I thought, oh, you know on. what? Oh, I'd yeah. actually debate that with you because <laughs> I changed the order. Uh, mine, he says, mine, number three, an F1 car. Yeah. See, I heard that and I thought, okay, I'm, you know, I sort of yeah, see yeah. what he's getting at. He's number, sincere. Yeah, yeah, he's thought about it. Number two, the ping of a driver. Yeah, that's right up there. Absolutely. Uh, number one, the crack of a net in Italian football. So I presume he means the stadium sound. Yeah, I think it's the net sound. They must have specific nets Why in Serie A, do they? What's an Italian net? I don't know. The sound of Steve Staunton banging one in against United in 1993 was uh, the greatest sounding goal of all time. It is an interesting... Sorry, it's not an interesting question, but uh, I would... Uh, <laughs> Let's I, make that clear. <laughs> I might go for uh, a well-struck iron shot and go for the compression of the ball. I might stick that in. That whoosh sound off from oh, a driver. Beautiful uh, thing. thing. It's just, yeah. oh God. I've never been to Formula One track, but I presume the sound of the cars is so loud. Have you been? Yeah, yeah. I was at the Melbourne Grand Prix there a number of years ago. Oh, yeah. Um, but it is, yeah. It's You don't have a clue what's going on at a Grand Prix. It doesn't like, strike you near, Unless sport. you're near a big screen, like you're just seeing these flashes of, like you're standing beside like a net or a cage or something like yeah. that, you know, and you're just seeing these flashes of colours going through you. And so you don't know where 
they are on the track, whether they've been who's fighting who. It's like you haven't a clue. So you're just looking at a big screen the entire time. It'd be up there for worse spectator sports, would it? Yeah, but at the end, you, there's a good atmosphere and there's a lot of drinking, and then at the end, you kind of can go down onto the grid and stuff like that. So, like, okay. well, it depends it, where you are. So so it's the one I, was I guess on. it has that visceral cars are gone thing yeah. of the noise of the cars. Yeah. You, could, you probably come away going, or during it, you're thinking, this is not fair. I can't see anything, but you, you kind of come away having experienced something. Yeah. You yeah, can yeah. feel it in your gut almost. Yeah. Like, I don't know if you're into horse racing as well. It's like, you know, you're, you're, the live experience isn't really right. the watching. Because yeah. you're not really, you're only able to see a small portion of the track you can, and it's hard to take in where everybody is. So again, you watch a big screen the entire time. Yeah. Not like when you go to a match, yeah. you're, you're, it's there in front of you, you know. So that was my experience with Formula 1. It's like if I wanted to, if I, while I cared about what was happening, I was watching a TV screen in the outdoors near the track, yeah. you know. I love the sound of a snooker referee counting up the score. <laughs> I was going to say something that's new said. What is that? Oh my god. As in, like, saying one, eight, nine. Up the score. There's something about that 16. that I love. I love the repetition of it. I love the predictability of it. Very soothing. It's, it's fantastic. The same thing with the balls and everything going in and everything. But just there's something about that. Do you know what I love in snooker? The crowd. You know, when there's like, there's, you know, there's a shot like that you don't, it, it's the, but they all have the, the, uh, the earphones in. And they're so listening to the commentary. When they laugh. They laugh, yeah, I but, love that but so no. Much. But the sound that I love particularly is if there's a real shot or it's like it's it's a tough one, but it's gonna it's like yeah, capture the frame, yeah. And it's like he'll try something outrageous, and the ball is only halfway to the pocket, but the commentator immediately knows it's going in, hmm. and then there's a, a uprise of the of the crowd before the ball pops into the pocket. You know, it's yeah. a very specific thing, but it did come into my head when yeah. uh, it's I, not as weird as Arthur's one though. OTB AM. You're welcome back. It is 11 minutes past eight. You're with us here on OTBAM. Now, tonight's LIGO Rovers tie with Viking begins in Norway. It is uh, the Conference League and former Northern editor and Europe editor with RTE, but most importantly, Sligo Rovers super fan Tommy Gorman is with us on the line. Good morning to you, Tommy. How are you getting on? Um, great form. Uh, you live for mornings like this where you're looking forward to your team playing for the first time uh, in the third round of a European competition. And you can just imagine what it's like for those young lads this morning. Like we have fellas from Mayo and from uh, Leitrim uh, and from Sligo and from Donegal and elsewhere. But you can imagine what it's like for them and their young lives uh, looking forward to going out and playing in a major stadium in Norway tonight. Uh, Just living the dream, really. What is it like for you at this point in your life as somebody who's, I guess, known Sligo Rovers your entire life or as long as you can remember you've known Sligo Rovers? What, what is this feeling like as, as you look forward to tonight? Well, this time 45 years ago, I was in my first job in journalism and uh, Sligo Rovers that year, they had won the league and they qualified in the European Cup to play against Red Star Belgrade. So I was going to the match in Yugoslavia and, you know, I still treasure those memories. They're still very fresh 45 years on. So as a fan today, you're just so conscious that, like, you really need to fuel the, the dream every so often, you know, to fill up the tank by qualifying for European competition because the finances of it are so important. And the model we have in the showgrounds, community-owned club, uh, people's club, we need days like this to get young lads into our academy And we also need, say, a run like this for our finances, because if you look at the kind of money that's generated by, say, getting into a third round, it's probably about 750,000 net. uh, And that's, you know, 
more than 50% of what it takes to run the club per year. So you need that kind of cash injection uh, to stay, uh, you know, in that top group in the premiership. You look at, say, the likes of Shamrock Rovers, who will get a run this year in the Champions League, then the Europa League. And if they fall out of that, the Conference League, that's worth over a million, maybe two million to them in a season like this. So you can see why they're so far out front within the League of Ireland with that kind of finance coming in. Big day for Pats as well, European game, uh, third round as well. So very important for them and for the chasing pack. And I also think it's such encouragement for that breed of young manager that we have in the League of Ireland now. You know, very, very good, committed guys, you know, from, you know, the Stephen Bradleys to, you know, Damien Duff has his track record. We have young John Russell. You have the likes of Stephen O'Donnell. You've got Tim Clancy. And even somebody like Ollie Horgan, who's down there struggling with Finn Harps at the bottom of the league today, he aspires to get into a European round like this with Finn Harps. So it's such a good advertisement for the league today. So we should all be kind of proud today, I think. For sure. Can I ask, how many Sligo people made that trip to Yugoslavia all those years ago? Um, small number. Uh some of the committee members, um, and we, uh, it was on a, it was on a scheduled flight. And say, for instance, with, with the Rovers this time around, um, we were lucky in the first two rounds because we were in Bala and Wales, low costs and easy for fans to, to get to. And then we were blessed in the second round, Motherwell. Again, you could travel across to Scotland handy enough. Today's different. Uh, so the team and, and uh, the few committee members who've gone with them, they had to travel from Belfast across to Aberdeen. And then they got a flight from uh, Aberdeen across to Norway. So that becomes more expensive. But interestingly, uh, the second leg of the uh, Viking game in the showgrounds that takes place this day week, that's already sold out. Uh, and the club made the deliberate decision to not move it uh, to say the likes of Tala, because that would mean huge expense for our supporters. And but by doing so, by keeping it in Sligo, you're only going to get three thousand eight hundred fans into the showgrounds because it has to be an all seater. That's the rule, and we had to get permission from UEFA to actually stage it in the showgrounds. We had to get a derogation because normally for a third round match, you need to be in a stadium that can hold at least five thousand seated. So we got that derogation. But we literally could have sold another two or three thousand seats in the showgrounds handy a week in advance. And um, that's the kind of decision you make. And that's where the finances become important, because what we're looking to do in the longer term is to have a stadium that will hold five or six thousand people where you'd be able to accommodate all your support base on a night like this. Tommy, is I was in Sligo last week for the game and it was like I got down in the mid-afternoon and Everywhere you looked, there was Sligo Rovers jerseys. Like the place was heaving. The atmosphere across the day was brilliant. And like, I'm guessing that must be up there in terms of the nights, the sort of the European nights, because Sligo had a lot of, Sligo Rovers had a lot of big nights in Europe, but not necessarily big wins. Like there was a lot of sort of, you know, runs where they, they lasted for one, for one tie, for one game. But this must be sort of right up there yeah, in terms of like cementing memories for the the next generation, if you know what I mean. Yeah, you're you're a million percent on the money. Um, you know the location of the showgrounds. It's in the centre of the town. It's a twelve acre site, 
uh, and everybody uh, in the area knows the Rovers. They're of the people. Uh, but to get to a third round is new territory for us. Um, and like the pictures, the television pictures were fantastic. I saw at one stage there was a shot of a group of people behind the goals in the television feed. Uh, and I spotted in there Aidan Keane's partner and their little baby. Uh, and you could see that, you know, they were close to the goals that he was going to be shooting into. And then, you know, a number of times the ball went out of play behind the goals and you cut to the shots of the young lads catching the ball and holding on to it, trying to kill a few seconds in the game to sort of try and take the, the steam out of any challenge that was coming from Motherwell. But of course, it was it was a magnificent achievement in its own right, the match you were at, because Motherwell, Motherwell are, are a premiership club in Scotland. Uh, and for a club like Sligo Rovers to actually beat them uh, in the home game in Motherwell and then to come back to the showgrounds and to put not just one, but two past them. Like that was, that was really, really magnificent. Um, it's interesting what has happened with the Rovers in, in the last few weeks. Uh, Liam Buckley brought the club from a bad place. He stabilised it. He, uh, we got European qualification twice under him and, Rovers will be forever grateful to him for doing that. And he had really good values. But then the management uh, committee had a big decision to make because the results were going against us. Part of the problem was our own pitch at the start of the season and the kind of football Liam wanted to play. That wasn't his fault. But they brought in John Russell, Liam's assistant. um, And that was hard to end the relationship with Liam. But John Russell seems to be a lucky general because in the game against Bala, in the in the showgrounds match, Bala beat us out the gate. Um, they had a team of really wise characters who came to win. And only for Ed McGinty in that match, he saved us during the match. He saved us an extra time. And then he saved two penalties. And there was something beautiful about the way it ended for him because he's a lovely young fella. He came to us after Celtic uh, and Hibbs had let him go. They said he was too small. He came up through our academy system. And his contract was due to run out in November and he could have left for nothing. But he was keen that if he did go to a, across the water, that there'd be some money in it for the club that had helped him. So we got a decent transfer fee for him with some add-ons if he sold on to another club. And then we had another young keeper uh, called McNicholas who had been playing with them. We had him out on loan in Cliftonville last year. And his contract was due up in November as well. And he was wondering, am I going to get first team football? So it worked out beautiful beautiful for us in the end that Ed McGinty got away to Oxford. And now we've got young McNicholas in on a full-time contract with us, a new contract, and he's playing in tonight's match. So in that respect, things have fallen nicely for John Russell. Now, the downside of it is we were put out of the cup uh, by um, Wexford. Uh, last last weekend, the same happened to Pats. They were beaten by Waterford. And you can see that pattern there for clubs that are making it to Europe, that sometimes it's such a stretch in the resources that they can't sustain their league or their cup form in Ireland. But um, if you were to ask me, would you take you know the results that we've had in recent weeks, including the defeats, I'd bite your hand off for them. It's just a lovely time for the Rovers. Tommy, look, has, has Sligo Rovers always been in your life? Like, it's one of the I mean, people talk about League of Ireland football, and like, there's parts of the country that don't have a League of Ireland team. 
there are parts of the country that do have a League of Ireland team, but it maybe doesn't necessarily penetrate the sort of local discussion in the same way that, say, the, I don't know, the inter-county GEA scene might. But Sligo seems very different to me. You know, I think Dundalk and there's one or two other places that might be like that. But from day one, like, was Sligo Rovers always there for you, if you know what I mean? I, I love sport. You know, this is a great year for, for Irish rugby. Um, I follow Spurs. Things are coming on well there. I followed Spurs since I was five. But the one result that really matters to me, the most important one, is always Sligo Rovers. Uh, because um, they really are uh, of the people. They're, they're what defines us uh, as a place. Uh, and ev- most people in Sligo are like that. It's a garrison town. And you're right, there are places like uh, you have great affection for clubs like Pats, you have great affection for for the likes of Bowles. You know, Shamrock Rovers had awful times where they were wandering around the city until they found their home in Tala. Cork have great support, Limerick have great support. Uh, and it's kind of sad, I think, in some respects, that this year's League of Ireland, you've got five teams in Dublin, you've got two in Loud, and you've got three in the Northwest. So if you draw a line from Dublin, uh, to the northwest, like all those good soccer towns like Athlone, Galway have a good club, Limerick have a good club. There's nothing in Kilkenny, Wexford are in uh, the second division, and Cork, like wonderful, wonderful uh, town. You know, remember Roy Keane came up through Cove Ramblers. Uh, it's really sad that you know big centres like that don't have a team in the Premier Division, and um, like. We, we count our blessings in Sligo that we're not in the second division, the first, what, what is the, the second tier, the first division, because that would be such a difficult division to get out of at the moment. It's so, so competitive. So yet these are, these are good times with the Rovers. Um, and a lovely thing about it is the way the academy system is working for us at the moment. Like in the past 12 months, three of our players, um, Johnny Kenny, John Mahan and Ed McGinty, have got across the water, you know, to try and and pursue their career there. And last weekend, we had a fantastic result because this is the first time we've had a a senior ladies team. And they pulled off, you know, a magnificent result last week where they beat really fine club, you know, uh, league leaders at the moment, where they beat Shelburne 3-2 at the showgrounds. So all those different elements of, say, the ladies' presence now, you see all the young girls in the showgrounds training, you know, most days now in the all-weather pitch at the front of the showgrounds. And then the youth team, thats the youth teams that are coming through and the academy players that are making it into the Rovers. And the guys we have, say, managing the, the, the side that's in Norway tonight, uh, John Russell and Ryan Casey, they've come up through our underage structures. And John Russell himself is a wonderful example of what's going on in the League of Ireland. Like his sister, Julianne Russell, is a really fine player. John played with us. He played with Pats, got his degree in DCU, has done his badges. Uh, he's from Galway. His father and mother are real soccer people, always encouraged their kids to get involved in sport. So you can see uh, the fruits of the effort that families put into sport. You can see those coming through in Sligo Rovers at the moment. Tommy, we have a photo here actually that you sent to us earlier on. Uh, you kneeling on the the goal line there, uh, praying for something uh, a, a short time ago. When was this photo taken? What? What? what uh, tell us the story of this pick. Uh, that was the uh, the night of the the miracle against Bala. Um, ah. 
to one stage in the second half an extra time where they were pounding that goals where you see me on my knees give it, giving thanks after the match. Uh, and a guy headed the ball against the crossbar and everyone was on the ground, no hope of saving any rebound. And a fella comes in and he catches the rebound on the volley and he hit the crossbar. And there was this spontaneous lift of about three and a half thousand people in the stand. They just knew we hadn't dodged one bullet. We had dodged a machine gun. And everyone just got up and started chanting Rovers, Rovers. And we got to the end of that match and then it went to penalties. Um, and young McGinty and the people advising him, they had actually studied the penalty taking techniques of Bala. Uh, so he went the right direction for all five penalties and he stopped two of them. So like it was a, it was a miracle that we got out of that one. And that allowed us to get into the round against Motherwell. And to be honest with you, when we drew Motherwell, I said, that's it. It's fantastic that we've got to a second round um, and, you know, we won't be greedy. And if we can get out of this at losing, you know, by two or three over in the overall, over the two legs, I'd be, you know, you'd be content with that. But to actually beat Motherwell and to get into the third round, like, you know, this is such fun. Are you going to be greedy tonight when you're looking to tonight's fixture and next week's fixture? Are you thinking, yeah, let's have it, let's have it? Um, we're modest kind of people. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it doesn't suit us to be greedy. Uh, and we're very, very thankful in, in agriculture terms, in some respects, the hay is saved because we probably now have banked sufficient resources to keep this level of a full-time professional team on the go for the next two years. And hopefully we've qualified for Europe uh, at some stage during that two-year period again. Um, and the other brilliant thing about it is this really helps us uh, to make our case uh, for state aid for our development plan for the showgrounds. Our centenary is in uh, 2028. And our hope is that we will have a bigger showgrounds with a, a new pitch, uh, new stands and, you know, better commercial activities there by, by 2028. Another little interesting anecdote to tell you, um, one of our big supporters is a guy called George Mullen and he puts in pitches all around the world. He has put in World Cup pitches in Qatar. He put in uh, pitches in Russia. He's put them in in many of the major stadiums. He's actually doing a pitch in South America at the moment. But, George Mullen installed a new pitch in Motherwell. And the first game, the game that christened that pitch, the first competitive match, was the game that Sligo Rovers beat Motherwell 1-0. So one, one of our own helped us in that. <laughs> Uh, like it's kind of the, the, one of the things that kind of really sticks out, Tommy, from listening listening to you talk this morning is just that phrase about the club being of the people. You mentioned that a couple of times this morning, and it, and it does feel that that seems to be part of the relationship between the fan group and the playing group, regardless of where the players have come from. And there is a lot of people who are who are very much homegrown and are and are of the place as well. But it does seem that there is as much like a, a very very close relationship between the fans and the players almost on an intimate level that they, that they know the ins and outs of each of the players and almost vice versa like is that the case from your perspective as a fan of the club absolutely it keeps us honest as well because you know there were so many financial crises in the showgrounds over the years that the ground would have been sold or mortgaged many times over just to keep us afloat 
you know, if we had been able to do that. But the way it's structured, the ground is owned in trust for the people. So you can't do that. And Sligo, it's what, 15, 20,000 people, counties, 65,000. So there's no big sugar daddy. You know, some of the other clubs like, you know, Shamrock Rovers have got Dermot Desmond, you know, they've got uh, their pitch provided by the local authority. Um, Dundalk have got an investment. Even Galway have got the Comers who are very, very helpful to them. Pats have got uh, Gareth Kelleher. Uh, Bows are a bit like ourselves, but, you know, they've got very valuable real estate. Uh, but we don't have, uh, Derry have, you know, very, very uh, benevolent chairman at the moment, but we don't have anybody with that kind of money. Um, and we can't take in, you know, private sector investment that would risk the future of the club. So basically, we we eat what we kill. Uh, we have to generate our own revenue every year, you know, through golden goals. And we have a network of people. There's a former chairman of Sligo Rovers called Dermot Kelly. He's an anaesthetist in the INA and in St. Vincent's in Dublin. And Dermot was a fantastic chairman when we were flying high in the years when we won the league in the Cup a decade ago. Dermot helped to build what we call the Volkswagen stand in the showground. We still have to put a roof on it. But Dermot Kelly has more clients and friends in Dublin who are in our 500 club throwing in 240 quid a season on a direct debit system every year. And that kind of stuff is vital. So we rely on that kind of finance all the time. And like even for, say, a game like Viking, it was very important for us that the commercial side of the club, and most of these people are volunteers, but that the commercial side of the club were actually selling out next week's match just in case, you know, you went down 5-0 tonight and all the air was taken out of the balloon. We know that we're going to have a great night and a financially successful night in the showgrounds this day week because, you know, sold out showgrounds with golden goals and uh, match uh, programme sales, the revenue you generate from that will probably pay the cost of getting the team to Norway, uh, the flights, the hotels and whatever else you need, the food. So you have to be thinking like that in a club like Slayer Rovers all the time. Um, it's, it's, it's a kind of a, a sad dimension to it in a way that you can never concentrate fully on what's going on on the pitch because you're also wondering how much have you taken in in the turnstiles. Yeah, for sure. Uh, listen, Tommy, the very best of luck over these next two nights. Hopefully it's another very famous night for, for Sligo Rovers. Try and enjoy it as much as you can and hopefully we'll chat to you again soon. Thanks a million. Thank you and thanks for the interest. Cheers. Tommy Gorman there, uh, formerly of RTE there on the line, uh, mm. Sligo Rovers. You, you can't but root for them. Yeah, I met that fellow George Mullen actually, the pitch. Uh, he laid the pitch for the World Cup final in Russia in right. 2018. So I did a piece with him out there at the time. So their company are... Uh, a global force but and I, I mean it's so much of what sort of Tommy there sort of strikes the chord like the when you think like I walked into the, the ground for the game last Thursday and I would know a couple of people on the board and like straight away like they were like you know put this out there and they were everyone who came into the ground they were handing them a, a flyer saying become a member of the club here's what your ownership will get you um, you know they're selling tickets fundraising whatever it's a constant battle like it is it is a club as he alludes to there that's sort of member owned um, so it's not like they have someone that can write a cheque to write the shortfall at the end of the year 
it is one where the European money really does mean everything and it's the it's the weird reality of football in this country where domestic prize money is so low there's no TV deal no TV funds which makes it a bit of a you know UEFA do these benchmarking reports from around Europe and you see where people get their income from and like TV deals is such a big part of the place in most countries uh, and that doesn't exist here um, so clubs like Slagger Rovers just have to fundraise like mad and tap into a community that um, that is passionate but they give a lot back too I mean like I, th- I thought it was really nice last week after I think Sligo GEA put out a tweet and I think you know really supportive and I found it very bizarre I think it was a Tony McEntee who's the manager now at one point in the last year I think I might even have been on here he was on about like you know the the interest in, in Sligo Rovers and it, it's a bit of a fool's goal because I'm not sure there's any you know the many Sligo people playing with the team and I was just thinking that going that's so out of sync with a uh, the reality, the great thing about what Sligo Rovers have done in the last couple of years is that they have a local academy um, that is churning out local players, not just from Sligo, but from Leitrim and Mayo, as sort of Tommy mentioned there. Like you have Niall Morhan playing last week from Leitrim Town. You know, Caelan Barlow, a young lad, come on for Sligo, was very good. Previously, they've had Johnny Kenny, has gone to Celtic from playing from his local club, John Matten at St Johnston. And there's a raft of them there through a pretty strong academy that they have that's providing opportunities for like young footballers in the region to play football professionally, but also you know, go on to another level. And in other parts of Ireland, it's quite fractious, even the relations between the League of Ireland club and schoolboy football or between other, you know, wings of the, the game. There's been issues even in Donegal and Cork, you know, there's all sorts of disputes. But in Sligo, generally, a lot of people are actually are on the same page and they recognise what, what a strong local football club can do for their community in tandem in line with all the other sports you know and I think they are looking at sort of this master plan this stadium vision which may see some sort of crossover with that and um, I know obviously I do love going there because it's sort of a vision for maybe how uh, football can sit into uh, the sporting ecosystem that word you know in a place and in other parts of Ireland it's a lot more fractious mm. and actually in Sligo it's sort of working and that's why I'm very glad to see them sort of get these big nights It wasn't a show actually that, that Tony yeah. Mackley said I, I couldn't believe the, it The yeah. biggest problem we have in Sligo uh, is the soccer Soccer does well but I think in my view it's slightly fool's gold looking at the soccer piece because I'm not sure there's that many homegrown Sligo players playing with Sligo Rovers He does to be fair the second we would have then would be potentially rugby yeah. and we have a few players that would be very good at the rugby as well and Connor's rugby would be reasonably strong uh, he says, so for good or bad, the actual issue that impacts us most in the football end uh, is the hurling as well. So he kind of... It's yeah, it was, qualifi- it was yeah. qualified, but it was, it's, just, it's just wrong, really. Like, I mean, they do have a, a lot of... They also have a couple of guys from New Zealand and they've always had to bring in outside managers and players because they actually find it very hard to get people from Dublin, um, you know, the players in the Dublin region to move... To, to, to move out west as such is actually easier they always have a stream of players so they have two New Zealand internationals there at the moment they have an Estonian fella uh, they signed a guy on loan from Leipzig last week because they find it hard, hard to get sort of the dubs or the people from this neck of the woods to, to move across but what they do have now noticeably is a number of like their own academy graduates from the area not just Sligo but as I said Leitrim and Mayo the goalkeepers Mayo um, who are getting a chance to play football in you know without having to travel you yeah. know without having to go somewhere else which would have been the, the traditional thing in fact you would have had the likes of Alan Cawley and people like that who would have actually gone to travel to play their schoolboy football in Dublin when they were younger that you had to go and play in Dublin at schoolboy level to be to be spotted 
Um, so I think if, you know the FBI and any strategy plans and stuff that they're doing, if they want a template for actually how things could work, I think actually it's like it was a pretty good one. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, it, it's it's there's a, there's a good story behind that there. Yeah. Uh, right. It is eight thirty seven. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. And it's time for the sports pages. There are so many idiots out there. So many spoofers. There's a lot of horse. <laughs> I think he's a total spoofer. What do you mean a spoofer? He's a bullshit. Ah, no, Emma, come on, don't, don't be, no, I'm not having yes. no. In an ad break a few minutes ago, you'll have heard the lads last night talking about their favourite sports sound. Arthur had uh, a kind of messed up one to be kind of honest with you the man counting I actually had the, 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 the intro in a therapy session yeah. I think to be honest <laughs> you uh, know. does that ring any bells for you or do you have a different one well, my, my, I think of obscure sporting sounds or bizarre ones to me right I love the uncomfortable murmur of an Irish football crowd when someone passes the ball backwards <laughs> That when they pass it towards a goalkeeper or back towards in a defensive position, and there's no real, there's just that tangible. What's actually after happening here? Because I remember, um, is it even in even in Sligo last week, which like they, they're a team that plays like you know passing football but there will always be a class of fan attending a game here that just wants the ball in the box and I'm sure you'll experience it at the Aviva as well and even in the the Stephen Kenny's team trying things there was a couple of games where you could sense this unease with going back to Bazuni or going back to or the short kickouts, you know and it's just a particular sound and I think some of those short kickouts didn't work out particularly well in Ireland but you know that sound of the crowd the groan it's, not, it's, not, it's just a little yeah it's just a little subtle one you know because um, they had I think um the like the really good Dundalk team a couple of years back, like Stephen Kenny's Dundalk team, like they would be well aware of this as well too. That I think apparently even in training they'd uh, like if they if they strung like five or six really good passes together, you know, but but going defensively going back, someone would shout like you know get it in the box Dundalk because that's exactly what the, the 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 chant from the crowd would be. But sometimes it's just it's not actually vocalised. There's no rant. It's just yeah that that unease. Um, for sure that's a very good one the, the groan uh, I'm just looking at through the back pages here and it is Manchester United that dominate things once again this morning the Irish Independent leads with the headline United boss sees red over Ronaldo antics irate Ten Hag calls out strikers unacceptable behaviour as exit saga takes another twist meanwhile Donica Boyle reporting that Bohan is linked to the Rossi's vacancy this is uh, Mick Bohan uh, who has obviously been manager of the Dublin ladies football team has been linked to the job that Anthony Cunningham has just walked away from and Stephen Bradley has warned his Shamrock Rovers players that another bad half hour could kill their group stage dream as the League of Ireland European representatives face into another huge night so it it is going to be a a couple of big days this week and next for the League of Ireland clubs in Europe the back of the Irish Sun goes with tension Eric tells Ronaldo early exit was unacceptable get fit if you want to play and uh, another headline there it's Mark Madness confusion reigned last night over Chelsea's move for Brighton's defender Marco Correa Seagulls Chiefs were forced to release a statement denying claims they had agreed to sell him for £52.5 million and uh, also the headline there on the Irish angle Rovers St. Pats and Sligo Rovers will hope to soar in Europe again tonight after taking flight whatever way they can so Dublin Airport still under pressure Pats followed Sligo's lead by flying out of Knock. Knock is uh, getting a lot of action in uh, in Europe this year. Yeah, like Knock has seen more European football here than some football clubs have in in a long a long period of time. Knock is an underrated airport uh, yeah. on the way back. Uh, back page of the Mirror: 
It's all gone wrong. Cristiano Fury after Ten Hag calls early exit unacceptable. And it's all gone young. Blues bid to nab Frankie. So uh, Chelsea have made a sensational move to hijack Frankie Dion's move to uh, Manchester United. Uh, see you, you later. No way back for Ron after Eric Slam's icons early exit. There's that the young story. And uh, St. Pat's. Uh, boss Tim Clancy says the officials most, must take appropriate action if there are racist incidents in tonight's Europa Conference League clash in Sofia. Uh, the Irish Examiner this morning, their sports section goes with Fantasy Islands. How Ireland became the global hotspot for Fantasy Premier League. Ema Ryan says Cork versus Kilkenny, the rivalry that defines modern camogie. So that is the decider this weekend. We're going to have Sarah Donovan on with us tomorrow morning to do a, a full preview of that one. The Irish Times this morning then leads with that as well. Phelan and Kilkenny embracing another final challenge, writes Paul Keane. Northsiders have lost several players from the last title success 20 months ago, but are still good enough to be facing Cork at Croke Park. And I think they are favourites according to the bookmakers as well, Kilkenny, to get over the line this weekend. The back page at London Times leads with Ronaldo. Uh, his exit is unacceptable, says Ten Hag. I think we've pretty much covered that at this point. Uh, John Duggan, good morning to you. Owen and Dan, how are we doing? I uh, can't believe I teed you up without teeing this up. It is virtual insanity time. You have entered Power Drive. Another big week for the golf lover in your life, John. It was uh, frustrating last week. Taylor Pendrith was a 70-to-1 headline tip and he was tied for the league going into the final round in Detroit, the Rocket Mortgage Classic, and he finished uh, tied for second. And the next guy I picked was also tied second, Cameron Young. So it was a missed opportunity at profit for the year again, but um, that's them's the breaks, as Boris Johnson would say. How are we looking overall? 8.33 out of 1,000, so slightly down. But I didn't go into profit until Halloween last year, so... Okay, um, that's a few months away up. Yeah, we're, we're you know it's, it swings around about. It ended up at forty six percent profit last year, a little bit down this year. So just you know, if we were all making profit every single year, we would be living in Barbados. Then again, you could have other people doing the tipping slot rather than me. So um, that's fired. You know, um, <laughs> I need to get what's it, your man's uh, that bowler guy. Uh, you always say to me, "Yeah, who do you think you are? I am." Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm waiting for that moment, um, and hopefully that moment will be sooner rather than later. Hopefully, John. Uh, so this is the Wyndham Championship, which starts in North Carolina uh, today, eleven fifty Irish time. Denny McCarthy, the man with the Irish name, is the headline tip and a strong fancy for me now this week for Denny McCarthy. Been following him all year. He's much improved. He contended at the U.S. Open. Um, statistically, the best putter on tour for two years, 2019-2020. Eight euro each way of our virtual money at 35 to 1. Uh, five top 10 finishes this season, including three of his last five starts. Did miss the cut last week, but not too concerned about that. Puts very well on Bermuda greens. I think the course at Sedgefield suits him this week. He's been never missed the cut there. Tied 15th last year, tied 9th year before when he was playing uh, inferior golf to the golf he's been playing this year. Denny McCarthy has not won from a Walker Cup player. I think he can break through and win this week. He's a strong fancy as my headline tip this week, each way 35 to 1. The other three I put up on otbsports.com and on the app are Christian Bzaudenhout at 40 to 1 for three each way. Uh, was second to the John Deere Classic three starts ago, has won three times on the DP World Tour, has got a beautiful touch around the greens, which is what you need this week. 
Um, a 64 among his previous round at, um, uh, at the Wyndham when he only appeared there once. I think he's a good each-way chance. Adam Svensson as well, a 66-1 to 1 for three each-way. Uh, five top 25s in his last six starts. The Canadian has won twice in the Corn Ferry Tour last season, so he knows how to get the job done. Had a shot of 61 in this uh, course before. I think he's a guy who can definitely contend. And the rank outsider... At 175 to 1 for 250 each way is Vince Whaley, an American friend of Scotty Scheffler's, uh, was fifth of the Barbasol Championship last month, uh, 17th last week in Detroit, um, has shot two rounds of 66 here before, is going to get his tour card for next season. I think he is, of all the outsiders, is the most overpriced outsider is Vince Whaley at 175 to 1. Sir. So Vince Whaley, Adam Svensson, Christian Bazadenhaus, but the strong each way headline tip this week, folks is Denny McCarthy. Okay, I want to keep an eye on this weekend. That is uh, Virtual Insanity this week. You have entered Power Drive. Tommy Gorman uh, is a Tottenham superfan. John Duggan is a Tottenham superfan. And we'll have Clive Allen on the show a little bit later on, John. So this is a Spurs special this morning. Uh, one of my saddest days in sport uh, was the 1987 FA Cup final. Uh, I was eating my dinner. I was, what, eight years of age. Clive Allen put Spurs in front after two minutes. It was that season when he scored 49 goals. Player of the year, 33 goals in the league. And you're thinking, this is going to be our day and we're going to win the FA Cup. And as a formative Spurs fan, uh, only a couple of seasons into my fandom, it was an amazing moment. And then Coventry City beat us 3-2. So it was not really the same after that. Uh, Glenn Hoddle left. Um, I remember Ozzy Ardiles played in that game. You know, Chris Waddle at the club at the time. We had a really, really good team. We were third in the league, finished uh, in the semi-finals of the League Cup and, and lost the FA Cup final. The nearly season under David Pleat, if there was European football back then, I think Spurs would have done well in it. We played a 4-5-1, really exciting team. And Clive Allen was the lone striker. and uh, A brilliant player who was unlucky with injuries. I always think in 84-85 season, we could have really contended for the league if he'd been fit. Um, and, and um, yeah, it was... Uh, it was, I think, a brilliant goal. Colin Buhig, our producer, was uh, you know pointing out to me one of the best goals he's um, he's ever seen from Clive Adams. So it was uh, against it was for QPR at West Ham in March 1984. And the funny thing about Clive Adams was he went to um, he went to Arsenal but never made an appearance mm. uh, from Crystal Palace, and then ended up at QPR, played in the cup final in 1982. But it was Spurs really where he made his name before going to uh, Man City and Bordeaux. But um, one of my childhood heroes, and uh, look forward to hearing from him soon. We were having a conversation earlier on in the show off last night's news round about our favourite sounds in sport. Right. What's the sound that gets you going the most in sport? Uh, well, I've been lucky enough a few times and Dan would know from World Cups and that kind of thing. When a stadium goes to another level and you very, very rarely hear it in life and luckily enough, I was lucky enough to hear it at the Olympic final in the Maracanã when Brazil won that on penalties or lucky enough to hear it when Russia uh, beat Spain at the World Cup. Um, actually, when, when Stephen Cluxton hit that that point in, in Krog Park, I would have heard it. You hear just this almost like locusts in your... Not that I've heard locusts. But uh, <laughs> this, uh, you just hear this absolute deafening, deafening crackling sound in your ear. And it's like tsh, reverberation in your ears, a euphony of sound in a full stadium of 80,000, 100,000 people. And that, to me, is the essence of life. And there's nothing, to be honest, you know, I don't do class A's, never have, don't do illegal drugs. But uh, I'm telling you, that the high you get from that, I don't know, Dan, if you've experienced that, I'm sure you have it at games or own yourself. Um, maybe you did a Kerry when they beat um, 
Galway at the very end of the final whistle. Uh, but the final whistle sound, that sound of that just pure deafening sound is definitely the sound I love the most in sports. What about the sound of people who hear a roar in a stadium after they've left the ground? That must be, yeah, one of the, that must yeah. be a, a, a sporting sound of some description where you've gone. What was the game recently where a load of fans stormed out and they couldn't get back in? Was it the Real Madrid Man City yeah. game? I can imagine the sound of the, that sound, as you say, of the stadium going wild after you've walked out early. That must be a painful sound. Yeah, you, I, I, or, but there is something kind of glorious about it. If say you're going to a doubleheader and you're not very interested in the first game, and you hear it, on, hear it. you hear it on the way in, mm. like the that roar, but from outside the stadium, the the cacophony of sound that it produces and shoots out of the stadium is is quite nice yeah. from outside. Different different countries have a different sound. Like the Scottish fan roar is a different That's type guttural. of roar than you have to other countries. You know, it's like it's guttural. It's exactly it. I remember the the game where Scotland beat Ireland in um, it was played in Parkhead and just the roar when Scotland scored it was just a different sound to what I've heard that you would hear in other places mm. it's definitely like a, there's a little underrated sort of a national element we can all add to that I don't know what the Irish sound is is it just like well, it's probably your groan is it it's the groan when someone passes the ball back into their own half yeah that's obviously I what mean, it is I would love to I'd say so the Genoa sound was pretty good their media game in 1990 or the Stuttgart sound I'd say they were pretty pretty amazing sounds it's just the, 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 there is a there is a level of where actually it's actually deafening in your ears and you have that noise and like it's it's it is like a drug, getting that noise. Another one is, that's interesting is when the air and the sound have sucked out of a stadium. Like, it's happened a few times. Michael Lino was one. You can obviously know that it happened on the TV. But I was there for the Ajax-Spurs game uh, when Spurs scored, Lucas Mora. And like the whole stadium, they were, they were about to win. They were absolutely rocking. It was like just pure silence. Mm. We had it again, Ireland-New Zealand in 2013 when they scored a, a late conversion to win the game at um, Viva when we were, we were leading. Yeah, uh, when you just have that pure uh, silence, and uh, these are amazing, like the sound of silence. Yeah, and uh, I think you were in the middle of it, John. But everybody else in the stadium probably would have felt like just this tiny pocket of unbelievable ecstasy, where yeah. it's almost like a very loud noise in your TV that you've just turned down to like one volume or something like that. Much, it's just yeah. coming out from from the corner. Pretty much. I think yeah. the f- famous one of that was I think Ireland were on the verge of qualifying for I think the World Cup in 1958. This guy called John Accio got a late equaliser for England. I think it was Philip Green was the RTE commentator and had some line about the sound of silence. You know, in the afternoon. Okay. Wow. Daily Mount just like it was so close and it was that late goal and it just it pricked it, as you say, like the life out of the balloon of the air out of the balloon or something. Yeah. And that's actually a famous one in, in Irish football right. history. The the England goal in fifty seven which killed it. Right. Yeah. Didn't even um, know about that. We'll check that out. Let us know your favourite sounds. We've piggybacked on last night's conversation here very, very effectively. You can tweet us at Off the Ball or you can comment on the YouTube stream if that's where you're getting us. Just to let you know, we are nine minutes away from our roadshow tickets going on sale. Off the Ball is going back to Vicker Street in association with Cadbury FC. We've got a massive roadshow coming your way on August the 17th. Michael Owen, Ian Wright, Emma Byrne and Karen Carney were going to be our guests. There should be some great stories in the night as four legends of the game reminisce about their careers and preview the upcoming season. This is an exclusive off-air event and tickets go on sale as I say at 9 o'clock this morning 8 minutes now and you'll get the details across all of our social channels a reminder that ticket proceeds will go towards supporting Irish women's grassroots football terms and conditions apply we'll see you on the night right it is time for the second episode of You Had To Be There it was so unexpected you had to be there covering Celtic at that time was a brilliant thing the atmosphere at Parkhead was always great you had to be there nobody ever talks about this game nobody saw it uh, you had to be there
The gauntlet was uh, very much laid down by Jonathan Wilson last week in episode one of this. You can listen to it back, listen to it back in our podcasts. Uh, Dan MacDonald is next man up as we go through some of the best live performances a journalist has ever seen in the flesh, of course. Dan, how challenging was this for you to put this list together? It's pretty challenging, yeah, because um, you don't want to. Like I know, I it was described as like greatest individual performances, but then. I did listen to Jonathan's piece last week and he, like, he threw in John Kennedy for Celtic, which was a memorable individual display, but I'm not sure if he's suggesting it was a better performance than I presume he's watched Messi in a Tassigo or something like that. It's the ones that, that stick with you. And I kind of find it hard because like, this is the classic sort of, I don't know, journalist sort of coming across like a bit of a prat without meaning to, but you've been to so many games and you've been to a lot of I'm lucky to have been to the last, I think, three World Cups and, um, you know, quite a few major tournaments that you sort of start to forget them. You know, did did you lose? I think the feeling, the you know, ones that made you feel like a fan. And the sad thing is, like, you you stop feeling that way, I think, because you're often just immersed in your own world. You know, you're actually sort of, you, you see great things, but it's very much in the context of, yeah, but I have a deadline here, and you, you sort of you, you almost lose some of that magic, or I have anyway. You know, yeah. maybe it's, maybe other people manage to sort of retain that. Um, so I actually had to really think about it and to try and think of ones that genuinely I was sort of thinking about it sort of twenty four hours later, and I actually had that sort of lasting impact. Um, rather than sometimes there's ones that they just like that was great, but they sort of go into the. The, the you know the the dustbin of history of your mind like pretty quickly but yeah. I also think as well uh, you know people move on from sporting events a lot quicker now they don't linger there's so much I don't know people don't you know you move on to the next story you have these in- incredible Champions League games in recent years like Barca PSG and all these comebacks the Liverpool one but it has to be almost extraordinary to live in the sporting cycle you know, beyond a week, you know mm. what I mean? But um, And there's possibly a conversation in there around individual moments as well that maybe uh, in the modern football we've got these super teams as opposed that's to... That's actually a very good point. The, 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 the framing here is about, you know, singling out players. Yeah. There's probably, there would be nights that I associate with teams rather than individual players like that. I mean, I, I mentioned it earlier, like that Dundalk run in 2016 was amazing, but I associate it as a team. So yeah. I couldn't pick out one thing from that, but I did sort of pick out a couple of stories, which are, a little bit more for me anyway my team is a little bit more almost seeing people before they were famous or you know okay. seeing them as they were about to, to take off I knew them before yeah. they were cool well uh, sort of yeah it's like I saw you know I, I saw this band in Whelan's yeah. you know before they sort of took off or something there's a, li- there's a small bit of that in there yeah so our, our first band that you've seen before they became mm. well known as uh, Wes Hoolahan Wes Hoolahan I had to um, this was the last one that I until like, similar to Jonathan last week I'm doing it in chronological order um, so this is 2004 a game between Shelburne and Finn Harps which wouldn't necessarily live long in the memory only for the fact that this was around the time you're realising nah, like, and a lot of people had realised this earlier but maybe just some, sometimes you see it in the flesh you see the hype coming to life is that this this Wes Hoolahan fella is pretty good and the clip is out there on YouTube if people want to look at you know Wes Hoolahan Finn Harps uh, they'll, they'll, they'll find this goal that he scored um, where he sort of executes this 1-2 and this sort of perfect deft chip that just drops in underneath the crossbar um, one of these goals you know I still sort of remember it I still remember sitting in the in the press box that night working um, watching the game and 
just being stirred by it and just sort of realising that I don't know how many people were in the ground that day you know sort of 1,500 people because shells even wouldn't have got massive crowds at the time even though they were pretty good um, but you're realising yeah I wish more people could, could see how good this guy is mm. and there's always a part of you with that with those the League of Ireland geniuses of which there are many you know and there's been many over the years like Tony Sheridan and Liam Coyle and these incredibly talented players who you always fear there's some kink or something that's going to hold them back from getting to the stage that they deserve that you're looking at this going this is a special talent that like most people like everyone tries to play football when they're a kid and this this fella has a talent that's in the percent, and yet you're thinking I really hope he gets that stage to did, do did it. Did he? Did he yeah. get that stage he deserved, do you think? Like to, it's oh, but he, but he did eventually. Extent. Like, Wes still scored it. Like, I mean, that's the thing. Why I think a lot of people probably um, felt the emotion of his goal against Sweden in the Euros in 2016. That, like, that, I mean, there was 12 years after, like, he was quite old at that stage. Yeah. You know, the, like, Wes played in the League of Ireland not for, like, six months. Like, a lot of the, like, the young players. Now, like, what the great thing about the Brexit reality now is that I feel like in 10, 15 years' time, there's going to be a lot more stories that people have like this because you will see great talents passing through for, like, you know, six months. But Wes was, was here for, I think, five years. Well, what about, know? yeah, but what about his club career? Did, did you think it would take him to an even higher plane than that got to? Because I think the Irish thing is a, is a little bit more nuanced than the talent. I mean, there's conversations around managers and all that, but if you distill this down to his club career, do you think he reached the level he your talent his, his talent could have got him to? Yeah, he, he could have got there earlier, I suppose. Okay. Like you know, and 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 in reflection, the Irish thing is possibly tied in with it. I mean, but the Ireland squad was very good around that time too. I think with Brian Kerr was the manager. Um, like, could he have found room for Wes and some of those squads? But it, it wasn't as much of a debate and the discussion then. And to be fair, he had a Premier League squad. And like the thing about Wes is, like it took him a while. I mean, he went to Livingston and didn't do especially well, um, and and then went to sort of England and worked his way up the levels there, and probably had to get fitter and do you know make certain improvements in his in his sort of lifestyle, which I think he's spoken about in the past, which he did. Um, And so maybe it's not, sometimes it's like it's football's fault that Wes didn't get to where he was, but maybe he himself could have addressed some things a little bit earlier and got to the top of the mountain a little bit earlier. Um, But I think there was possibly always a certain joy that a lot of people here took from Wes eventually doing his thing in the Premier League and and being part of like a big landmark moment like an Irish goal at a major tournament because I mean, over a decade earlier, they were saying someone has to realise how good he is. Yeah. You know, how good this guy is. Next up is uh, an international game between Croatia and Germany in 2008. Yeah, so this is Euro 2008. And like this is the, the first uh, the first tournament I went to, the first major tournament I went to. And there's always maybe, again, maybe there's a personalised element to that that you, you, you're particularly nostalgic for that because it was like, this is great. Like I'm at a, a major football tournament here. And it was the summer that Modric had just joined Spurs. So this classic thing where you will have in a major tournament, um, we all do it, it'll happen later this year, um, there'll be some smaller nation playing and some exciting young player on the team who's there's loads of Premier League interest in him or he's on his way to the Premier League and you'll watch them with a little bit more interest. But this was in a place called Klagenfurt and it was... Uh, 
one of these grounds which is rare a lot of the major tournaments you're up at a perch like the Aviva like you're looking at this stadium like a sort of a Subutio pitch down below you but this is one like White Hart Lane the old White Hart Lane and a few places where you're right at pitch level like sort of you know three four seats from the, the front you know so you're watching the game with the perfect sort of ringside sort of seat and Croatia beat Germany and Modric was sensational and it was just so obvious and as clear as day that this guy is is a world class operator and again and it may be like there's a bit of that with my list with sums it wasn't like one particular moment it was more just that sustained quality across the game this control this sort of degree of sort of uh, just just slowly you know you, you appreciate more maybe when you're there just the little runs the little passes that he was sort of controlling everything he was controlling the pitch everything was on a string and he was sort of uh, he was holding it and uh, again just one of these moments where you're thinking even at this level this fella can go so much further in yeah. where he can do and and Maybe you know, like you, I've seen performances from people, and and they've dropped off a clip, like you know, two years later, and and that's it. And maybe it's grown in in my mind. It's become even a, a bigger game or a bigger moment because he's gone on to be like a sort of a phenomenon. Like, yeah. and, and it wasn't just hype; he was the real deal. But yeah, that's a, a memory that all that will always stick in my mind. That one, class. So that's Modric in the group stages of your 08 against Germany. Uh, the next one is relatively niche. Yeah, I needed something niche in there. I definitely did. Like uh, the 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 League of Ireland European Games. I mean, it's very topical because we're talking about one. Uh, we're talking about a round of them today. And this is Shamrock Rovers Partizan Belgrade in 2011. This is the second leg of uh, the playoff tie. Rovers had drawn the game one all in Dublin. Gary McCabe, Katie McCabe's brother, got a late equaliser. Um, and going over there, like, you know, I went, there was only four Irish journalists went. And in reality, it was sort of the lion's den stuff. And you're selling it thinking, yeah, I think they have a chance of getting through. But probably deep down, you're thinking, I mean, this is very unlikely to happen. And one of the things about that Shamrock Rovers team is that they, they probably struggled in the goalkeeping department that year. So Ryan Thompson is a Jamaican goalkeeper who wouldn't have had a reputation of, well, this is a, a top keeper in the league. He would have had some good days and he would have had some bad days. You know, he would have had some ropey days. And you're sort of looking at him going to Belgrade, one of the best atmospheres I've ever been in, the Partizan Stadium. They're expecting this to be a night where they qualify for the group stages of the Europa League. And uh, seven, I think it was about five or six minutes into the game, um, he's taken a kick out and he pretty much kicks it straight to the partisan striker this classic sort of gaff right where you're thinking oh no like this is a horror show this is all your this is like this is the nightmare coming true like he's going to struggle here and he actually managed to save the shot that came straight back at him and it was one of these moments where you're thinking I kind of wonder could this night be something a little bit different and it sort of went from there that although partisan went 1-0 up um Thompson just starts to make some really good saves. He's having one of these nights. Again, there's a clip that's out there of him, like one incredible reaction save where the ball comes into the box, ricochets off a partisan player, and he somehow, that classic one that the goalkeepers do, the change of direction, the quick feet, and he sends out a hand and he pushes it around the post. And and it just, like, it's, it was one of those nights then Patrick Sullivan scored this an incredible 30 yard volley, and Shamrock Rovers go on 
to win 2-1 after extra time the first Irish club to ever qualify for the group stages of a competition in this like heaving stadium in Belgrade where there's like they're, they're booing their players they're slaughtering their players but they give a massive round of applause and ovation to Shamrock Rovers players coming off the pitch because they knew like this was a, you know a, a sort of a, a pretty small club having a pretty big moment there was like 35 Shamrock Rovers fans there there was big security concerns about how they would be treated I remember even arriving in Belgrade and everyone who arrived at Belgrade we were taken into an office and there was a security guard there and a local police guy there who gave us all individual instructions on how to conduct yourself while in Belgrade for this trip wow. I think they thought that there was going to be like all this trouble or this edge or something and that didn't um, materialise that didn't materialise and like the partisan were I mean it was a pretty intense angry place but more so directed at their own players okay. but in the midst of it you have this goalkeeper who possibly would have been described as you know a ropey one just having one of the nights of his life gets away with that early mistake and as the game goes on he gets better he gets better doesn't concede another and uh, they go into the group stages and they're playing Spurs and, and all of that and uh, he, he leaves the club um, I think at the end of that season he's gone and he's played around the world in sort of various places um, but he'll always have Belgrade he'll always have a place on Dan McDonald's list as well which well, that's, is the, that's the, the key list thing. where he wants to be in uh, yeah. I've got a couple more to go here uh, two more higher high profile names I think yeah. it's fair to say yeah so Jack Grealish so we have Jack Grealish who I mean we, we've heard of him you know, he's a little known player called Jack Grealish who uh, is always good to have a, an ex-Irish under 21 international <laughs> in the list um, but this this one again it's, it's Sheffield United and Aston Villa January 2018 where I'd actually gone to Sheffield to interview Enda Stevens or to do a piece with Enda Stevens after this match and the classic thing of uh, the journalist thing if you you, you, t- you pop along to a game in the UK to try and ho- watch an Irish player and you have sort of a loose arrangement to speak to them after the game you hope that nothing bad happens to them during the match and yeah. it changes things Go, like, I remember I went over to Chris Forrester when he signed for Peterborough and he missed a penalty in the 92nd minute of the game and I like you have to hover around and meet him afterwards it wasn't wasn't great but Enda Stevens makes a mistake in the last minute of this game and I just decided to leave and be they lose 1-0 but the real takeaway from the night for me was Grealish because you remember that little that little period after Grealish defected where he went off the rails a small bit and there was this sense of Villa went down and people thought well yeah, we've dodged we, bullet we, there. Don't, we, we don't miss this Grealish guy you know I think even around the time of even your I'm trying to think what term was it your 2016 or there was definitely a sense where he was on the, the downgrade but this was probably the night that sticks in me where I was just like, oh no, like this hold, guy hold is brilliant. Yeah. Like he he was, he became this boo boy figure in the championship. Like he, like for whatever reason, just because of Grealish, he had a bit of presence, a bit of swagger. I didn't realise that he was being sort of booed for no particular reason by Sheffield United fans that night in the same way like James McLean would get booed in stadiums just because he's a sort of a, a, a figure that annoyed him. He kept getting kicked. He just kept getting up. He kept looking for the ball kept taking the ball he would get fouled and I know he can be frustrating Grealish and where he's going to go to now and maybe with Villa he was trying to do everything which was both a good thing and a bad thing but I have to admit that it was you're just watching this game in the same way you're maybe talking about Modric or something thinking yeah this guy's actually probably going to go pretty far in the game and yeah it's just one that sort of I was trying to include something from sort of games in England that I've been to and that was definitely one that sort of came to mind that you're watching someone in the championship you're really, he's, he's going through a character building process right in front of your eyes 
and he's good enough to come out the other end. And they didn't get they didn't even get promoted that season. Villa it was ne- the next season they got up to the playoffs, but um, it wasn't a huge surprise to me then that sort of Grealish went on to be whatever, 100 million pound player. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Uh, your last one, I think most people will remember this on television anyway. Yeah, so I got lucky in the World Cup in, in 2018 that I got to, I was in Kazan and I think Jonathan actually spoke about this last week as well, that these World Cups, like the, the, the distances are vast and you sort of gamble on knockout games. You have to book them before you know who's in them. And mm. so you could, it could work out great or it could work out badly. You could think you're going to be preparing for a heavyweight clash and end up with like two low-profile teams. But because Argentina came in the back door to the round of 16, I ended up in Kazan for France-Argentina, um, which was possibly the game of that tournament. You know, like yeah. it was just... And to be in the stadium for it, was an experience as it was but Kylian Mbappe in that game was one of those moments almost like a sporting sound that we're talking about across the show there was this moment in the game where it was like a, a long 60 yard pass played over the top and the acceleration he showed the sort of lap I can't even remember who the Argentine defender was that he effectively sort of lapped him to get to the ball and there was this sort of intake of breath from the audience there was, would have been quite a few neutrals at these games and you're just realising again this is an extraordinarily sort of freakish talent like you're not this is like you're already watching elite football and everyone on that pitch is brilliant by a certain measure but there are obviously some people who just are that little little grade up you know and maybe I don't know like Mbappé hasn't gone on to be the absolute phenomenon that maybe I possibly thought coming home that he was going to be, you know, straight away that he would get to that sort of Messi Ronaldo discussion uh, level. He's not there now, right? Like he's he's. If you were to list like the top three footballers in the world, some people wouldn't have a minute. I think you know. Yeah, has the PSG thing held him back? In probably that has. No, it probably has, and and like various stories maybe about his. I, I don't know, like how, how is he perceived and, and there's maybe people around him that maybe aren't great influences and all these stories that we've we've seen a million times. But this was him with everything to prove to the world. Mm. Like this is like, uh, and maybe that that's the team here that a lot of these guys like were, it was before they'd really got to the top level. So they have that drive. Like we spoke about Aaron Connolly earlier. Like when guys are on the way up, sometimes they actually peak then. They never actually, Correct, you know, yeah. that that's what that actually is their peak. You just don't realize you're seeing that at the time, and like and they definitely don't realize. No, it. and and maybe Mbappe in that World Cup like may end up being the highlight of his career. It might well yeah. be, especially when you look at the Euros last time, missing that penalty and like yeah. the, the not the damaging effect that, that has, but it kind of felt at that moment that it was like, oh, there's actually kind of like a, a, a negative chapter to this guy's career yeah. where you thought everything was going to be so perfect that it was just a reminder that actually that these these guys are mortal. Yeah, and and, and it just it sticks. I've seen Messi play and Ronaldo play um, but they were sort of established figures Mm. and so uh, it was amazing to watch them and a great pleasure to watch them but there's something about sort of seeing someone who's who's on the way there and like that was such a sensational game but just his his contribution to it um, even if it wasn't he didn't score the best goal you know and, yeah, and Pavard's, was, Pavard's goal, the, yeah. the, 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 the flight of the shot was just stunning you know but it was possibly one thing you're thinking I'm going to be telling people in many years to come 100% I saw Mbappé play in that game he was absolutely sensational that day Dan an excellent list I must say fair Thank play you, to you. Yeah, that is this week's you had to be there it was so unexpected. You had to be there. Covering Celtic at that time was a brilliant thing. The atmosphere at Parkhead was always great. You had to be there. Nobody ever talks about this game. Nobody saw it. Uh, you had to be there. 
14 minutes past nine, you're very welcome back to OTBAM. Delighted to welcome Clive Allen to the show to look ahead to the new Premier League season. Clive, how are you getting on? I'm good, thank you. Good morning. We've had a couple of Tottenham Hotspur fans on the show already this morning. They were reminiscing in your glory days as a forward, a goal-scoring forward. Could I just ask first off, Clive, if you were playing in the modern game, how do you think you would fare, just given the way goal-scoring has become shared so much between uh, a front two, a front three, uh, quite often? Well, I do think the um, the art of the uh, goal scorer is dying in respect, as you say, of sharing the goals around. Perhaps uh, Harry Kane, a prime example of that fantastic goal scorer, but will develop play deeper down the field. Um, and so I, I think that's just part and parcel of the modern game. Um, I, I would just like to think I'd be in the right place at the right time and, and, and continue to score goals, which is which is what win games in the end in the end. It's going to be a really interesting case study this season, isn't it, with regards to Erling Haaland, where the possibly the most high-profile signing of the entire summer window is a centre-forward in the more traditional mould. And what we expect Erling Haaland to do is to score goals, and lots of them. It is a little bit of a throwback, isn't it? I, I, I believe it is, and I think that it was what... If there was something missing from, from Manchester City, hence their interest in Harry Kane last summer, um, adding... Um, Haaland this summer I think is a is a man, magnificent coup just 22 years of age he is the uh, atypical centre forward scores goals will give Manchester City a new dimension this year it just might take time for them to adjust to the way he plays and obviously the way that they played and won the uh, Premier League last year what sort of adjustments does he need to make because it, it seemed if we're getting carried away on the community shield there might be a little bit of a betting in process yeah, I think he's going to have to be patient because I think sometimes he will expect the delivery of the ball and it might not come because of the way City dominate possession, especially in the midfield area. Um, but I think if he keeps making those runs with the, with the quality that they have within that City midfield, uh, De Bruyne in particular, uh, they will start to find him, pick his runs. We saw that with Grealish um, providing for him in the uh, the winning goal he scored against Bayern Munich in the recent um, uh, pre-season game so it, it, it's going to take time to develop but there's no doubt that uh, I think he'll be a big star for Man City he, he does have all the attributes to succeed in the, in the Premier League it seems is, is there anything at all about him that, that would concern you in terms of how quickly he might get up to speed well I think it will be that he, need, he needs to be patient okay. he needs to understand that it will take a little time um, and, but I think that he, he, you know, he seems to have an old head on young shoulders um, and he'll adapt. He looks very, very determined and excited about joining City. Um, and I think it will pay dividends over the course of the season. Uh, we've asked you before coming on air to, to pick your top four and your bottom three. So what we might do, Clive, is just get your top four first and, and go through them. So so who are you looking at this season as uh, number one to number four? Well, uh, I, I think a lot of people will agree. Um, City, for me, will win it again. And I think that the addition of Haaland is, 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 a, is a good one. It's, it's made them even stronger, which uh, was difficult to do. I think Liverpool looked fantastic, especially last weekend. It looks as if they're going to hit the ground running. They will run City very, very close. Um, I think that the, uh, the the addition of Nunes, uh, their front line, obviously, um, you know, they're... they're it's a work in progress at Liverpool in that Klopp seems to be able to change players around but still get the right results. I think, um, you know, Van Dijk back in regularly at the heart of the defence has made them rock solid defensively. We know they can score goals. So I see Liverpool running Man City very close again. I think from then on down, it's very, very interesting because of 
the way things are unfolding. I think Spurs have done fantastic business in the summer and they've done it early, which is unusual for them. I think that Conti's stamped his mark on the, on the team. The way they finished last season was really impressive. Qualified for the Champions League. To take that on, he needed addition in players, a, a strength in the squad, which they've done. So I, I'm going to go Spurs third and Chelsea fourth. I think Chelsea, again, in a little bit of turmoil because of the changes, not necessarily um, uh, with the team, but but certainly uh, behind the scenes with the ownership, etc. But I think that Tuchel has had to um, make some signings because of losing perhaps a whole defensive line. So Koubali coming in is going to be a, a really interesting one to watch as to how he adapts to Premier League football. Fantastic defender, but he will find it difficult, I believe. And Chelsea, again, because of the, the addition, Raheem Sterling arriving, the, the changes that they've made, um, it will take them a little while, I think, to, to reassemble their, their authority that they had last season. So I'm going for Chelsea fourth. Is there a chance that Tottenham actually push on and and give Liverpool and Manchester City cause to look over their shoulder at this season? Well, I think they've got they've got some strength in depth now and I think that will be um advantageous as the season unfolds. Obviously they're going to be in the Champions League, which was uh, which was definitely the goal the end of last season was finishing fourth qualified for the Champions League. So that brings its demands uh, and it is a, a squad that is is just come together in terms of the numbers. It's going to be um, fascinating how uh, Conti juggles that squad, interchanges the players. I think that he's he's added really well in the departments that needed strengthening. So, um, yeah, I think if Spurs get off to a good start and carry the confidence they had from the end of last season into this, they could well be closer than, than, uh, than any teams to uh, City and Liverpool. It does feel that there's genuine optimism around the club that the success that they saw at the end of last season could be sustainable in the long term. I, I guess the one caveat to that is the man who's brought that sustainable looking level of success is Antonio Conte, who is very rarely attached with the idea of sustainability. The, his entire track record suggests a short term fix. Well, that's right. He, he he demands success. He wants success, and if he doesn't get it, he uh, he leave, he leaves what 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 he's done. He, he's quite happy to um, uh, to move on, and I think we've we've seen that with with the jobs he's had, with the success he's achieved. Um, he goes about it in his own style. Um, he certainly he's certainly not changed that approach in the way that he's uh, what he's brought to Spurs. So, um, you know, again, it. it Time will tell, but I do think that certainly the direction is going um, perfectly for Spurs at the moment. Their, their intention was to to bring him in to qualify for Champions League. That was achieved. So the next step is now in front of them. So Clive, you're looking at Spurs as the, the top team in London this year and you have Chelsea next. Do you see Arsenal being far off this year? Because there seems to be optimism around maybe some of their... Uh, pre-season recruitment that they might be closer like in, in your eyes do you think that's feasible uh, yes I do I think it is I think that um, you know they, they were in pole position last season to qualify for Champions League um, and I think maybe just the uh, I think the the age of the squad um, come to bear at the end where there was a big game a massive game at Spurs which they lost and from there they never really recovered I think the additions of uh, Shinchenko and uh, Jesus, um, obviously coming from City, they know how to win. They know what it took to win. Um, and they will bring that to this Arsenal squad. I think it's a talented squad. 
Again, I think Arteta's got a difficult job in the way that, that he manages that squad this season. The expectation will, will de- certainly be that they, they could be contenders for the top four. Um, I would have them chasing Chelsea uh, close in fifth. What's your opinion on Gabriel Jesus? Um, I think he, I, th- I think he needed the move. If I'm perfectly honest, I think that at City, um, it just seemed to me that he, he had he had to have three or four chances to score the one goal. Um, and I just think perhaps now where he becomes number one or the number one striker at Arsenal, that um, he can relax a little bit in front of goal. Um, Arsenal will create chances, will give him opportunities. And I, th- I can see him flourishing for, for Arsenal. I think it's a good move for him and, and it's certainly a good acquisition for Arsenal. It's always interesting, Clive, um, before we talk to you about which uh, which club we focus on. With, with Arsenal, and when we ask you about Arsenal, what, what sort of memories does that evoke for you? Is this, is it a, a sort of strange thing to kind of be kind of uh, attached to the, to the club still, given how it all went for you? Or, or how do you feel about your time at Arsenal? Well, I was 18. It was, um, it was an incredible period of my career, obviously. I was very young. Um, first million pound transfer for a teenager. That weighed heavily on my shoulders. Um, and I lasted just 63 days. I, I played for Arsenal for 63 days, two and a half pre-season friendlies, so not really a game, a competitive game. Um, I always said I grew up I grew up in that, that summer of uh, 1980 very, very quickly. Um, and I, I have to say, it set me on my way. It was, um, it was bizarre. Um, looking back on it now, people say, what, what happened? And, and it was, it was quite incredible, but, um, no, Arsenal have been very, very successful. Um, obviously under Arsene Wenger, quite, you know, invincible at times and their football was magnificent. Um, you know, historic football club, fantastic football club. And I, you know, I'm proud to say that I actually, uh, I actually was an Arsenal player very briefly. Why did they get rid of you? Um, it was a case of um, uh, supply and demand, really. Sammy Nelson, the left back, uh, picked up a bad knee injury in pre-season. They needed a left back. Kenny Sanson was the man that they wanted. The only way that that deal could be done was that um, if they traded me, Terry Venables wanted me to go to Palace. And that was the only way he would let Kenny Sanson go. So, um yeah, it was quite crazy. But um, obviously, it's all history now. I, I, like, I'm not an economist, but I would assume getting rid of a, a £1 million teenager after such a short period of time isn't exactly great business. Um, well, that, I think they will. They, they would say Kenny was a magnificent sure. servant for Arsenal, brilliant left back over the years, and they felt that that was their priority. Like it's, uh, it didn't work out too badly for you in the long run. Like, like if, if we were to pick a point where your career peaked, Clive, are we talking 86, 87, the, the 49 goals? I mean, statistically, it sticks out uh, off, off your stat sheet so, so brilliantly. Is, is that what felt like your best football as well? Yeah, absolutely. It was a magnificent team. You know, when you're playing with uh, the, the likes of uh, Ozzy Ardiles, Glenn Hoddle, Chris Waddle, my cousin Paul was there. Um, we played in a style that um, certainly suited me. People said, "Oh, you played up up, up front on your own." That, that was that was never really the case because of the, the quality of the players, the interplay, the movement that we had. Um, so, yeah, without a doubt, that was the best period of my career. Magnificent season. Um, one that, you know, um, I'd probably be remembered for. 49 goals in the season's not bad. Uh, absolutely not. Uh, for people who didn't see much of that team, can you talk to us a little bit about how yourself, Hoddle and Waddle all played together? Yeah, it was very interesting. David Pleat came up with the idea with the players that we had at our disposal. And, and basically, it was a five-man midfield, which no one had ever deployed before. And it meant that Glenn was the free player. The way that we passed the ball short into passing, 
Glenn became a free player. We overloaded midfield and teams just didn't know how to deal with it. Traditional 4-4-2 opponents, they found that we just kept the ball. We we certainly passed the ball well with the ability that they had. Um, and when you've got, you know, Chris Waddle's ability off the flank, Glenn Hoddle's passing, Ozzy Ardiles, my cousin Paul off the right, I got chance after chance playing in that way. And um, teams found it very difficult to to combat what we were doing. Yeah, and, you went, and you went to France then, which is sort of... Um... Like, I suppose we're so used now to like the Premier League is the hub for everywhere. Like the the power of the Premier League, it's everyone from around the world is sort of. It seems like that's their intended destination. But it would surprise people now that there was actually an exodus from English football in that period of time. That there was it wasn't just you. There was a sort of a spate of really high profile English players or English based players who who went abroad at that point. Yeah, that's right. I think uh, you know um, just following me, Glenn. Glenn Hoddle, um, Mark Haitley went to Monaco, Mo Johnson went to play at Nantes. There was players who were uh, playing in, in Italy, Germany. Um, and it was something that I think, um, you know, there, there was, it was, it, it was, it was pretty new at the time because, um, you know, some of the Italian football probably was the, was the most powerful at that particular time. So that was, that was a destination for, for the best players in the world. Uh, French football was, was very interesting multinational lots of uh, you know there were there was there was players from all over the world playing in French football and I was given the opportunity I, I went out of contract at Spurs and was given the opportunity I was 28 and I, I'd always had that ambition to play abroad at some stage in my career and I had to do it then that was the position I was in and um, I went to Bordeaux Bordeaux were a very powerful side in, in French football at that time and a magnificent experience you know I sit here today and I've always said um, I wouldn't have wanted to sit and regret that I didn't take that opportunity uh, um, at that stage of my career. How much success did you have that season in Bordeaux? Um, I finished I finished top scorer for Bordeaux. We 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 went to the quarterfinals of the UEFA Cup, lost to Diego Maradona's Napoli, who went on to win it. Um, we finished third in the league, which was disappointing for, for for Bordeaux. We had a disastrous cup exit third round against Beauvais, who were a third division side. So um, that was that was very disappointing. But um, played with Jean Tigana, a magnificent uh, magnificent captain. Uh, Enzo Schifo, Belgium midfield player, who was a, a wonderful technician, and um, the infamous Eric Cantona as well. The last three months of my my time at Bordeaux, Eric came and played, and I played with Eric when he was very young, enfant terrible, but uh, an unbelievable talent. Did you know how good he was going to be? Um, I would say no at that time, but you could see that he had a real presence uh, about him, confidence, um, undoubted ability. Um, and obviously it wasn't until a number of years later that he, he turned up at Leeds and then then Manchester United that, um, you know, I think Eric fulfilled all, all the potential that um, that they thought that he had. Did he wear the collars up in the Bordeaux shirt? He certainly did. He nice. certainly did, yeah. He he um he wasn't shy, was Eric. <laughs> so am I right in saying that you would have played at the San Paolo with Maradona in the side? What 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 was that experience like? Well, quite incredible. Um that you know, that was a Napoli team that basically Maradona picked up by the by the coattails and and, and took them to the Scudetta, um, the uh, the UEFA the UEFA uh, Cup. And um yeah, he was um he was extraordinary. I had the pleasure of playing with him at Spurs in Aussie's testimonial a few years later. And, um, you know, he was the best player in the world at the time. And, and him and Glenn Hoddle were, were just on another level when, when they played together that night. 
So, um, yeah, it was very, uh, very, very fortunate to have played on the same field as Diego, played against him and played with him. Was it just electric when he got the ball in front of those it, it, Napoli fans? Yeah, it, yeah. it was just sensational. Um, the, 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 just everything that he did, it was, it was so natural. It was so easy for him. He was so quick, um, technically, uh, uh, technically a player that um, I'd never come up against or never seen before. It was quite extraordinary. Like It, it does sound like uh, one of the more fascinating periods of your career, Clive, even though everybody remembers you know, the 49-goal season for Tottenham. And like, I wonder if, if you're talking to any young footballers at the moment in England. I, I presume you'd advise a lot of them to, to go and experience other leagues if they ever get the opportunity. It, it's just the problem is you can sometimes be a victim of your own success where the Premier League has all the money right now and you'll rarely get that opportunity if, if you're any good. Yeah, that's right. I think, um, you know, I, I certainly um, enjoyed that experience. I glad, glad that I, I went through it. I now cover, um, obviously, French football for, for BT now. And it's something that, I, you know, I have an understanding and feeling for having experienced it. But I think for any any young player, especially if they, they perhaps don't make the progression that they hope to earlier on in their career, to give them the opportunity to go and experience foreign country, um, a different style of football, I, I think that just develops them, not only as footballers, but as people as well. And um, I think that you would find that a, a lot of players will flourish if if, uh, if they took that opportunity, if it was presented to them. Because just looking, Clive, I mean, it is 30 years this year since the Premier League, you know, since the, the, the transition to sort of the Premier League era. And I was looking, you you played at West Ham, you got promoted that season. You're sort of in the, in the second tier. I'm That's just wondering, right. like, did, did you have a sense then of how the Premier League was going to explode? Because I've been looking at it the last week. You look at a lot of the games and of the 22 players on the pitch, you might have like 22 English players or Scottish players or you know players from this part of the world. Um, was there any sense then at that time that the game was about to change so, so dramatically in England? No, I don't think there was. I think that it was, it, it was obviously a progression. It was a new era, but I don't think anybody had the, the, the real inclination or, or belief that it, it could become what it is today. It is the toughest league in the world. I think the, the, the globally now you can go anywhere in the world and, and, and they love the Premier League. They love the competition. They, they, they love the way that the, the entertains. It, it never ceases to amaze into what it produces. Um, and it's grown to something that's quite extraordinary. Um, yeah, I did play in the Premier League, five Premier League games right at the very start. Um, and I'm proud to say that I did because, uh, you know, the Premier League is, is the best league in the world and, and it will attract the best players. And, and, and I think that really is why it is so special. Uh, just one last thing before we let you go, Clive. You also asked you for who you think are going to get relegated from the Premier League this season. So who are your bottom three, do you think? Well, this was a tough one because I think, um, you know, that, that for me, there's a big divide in the, in the Premier League. I think we, we can look at you know, the potential top 10 teams. And I think we'll we'll pretty much get all of those, I think. And then there's there's 10 at the, in the bottom half that are going to be scrapping for a lot of the season. I think it's going to be very close, a close run thing. Uh, for me, I think Bournemouth are going to finish bottom. They're going to struggle. Um, I know Scotty Parker worked with him at, at Spurs, did a great job to get Bournemouth up, but I think they're going to find it very difficult. Um, and I'm looking at, what I saw last season, um, Brentford for me, I saw them play at Spurs towards the end of last season, thought they were very disappointing. It is going to be their second season in the Premier League. I think that clubs are going to be far more aware of what they do, how they do it. Losing Ericsson, I think it could be a massive blow to them in terms of 
how their season unfolds. So I'm going Brentford second bottom. And for me, Southampton, I thought Southampton had a really awful finish to last season. They need to, to get up and running quickly because if not, I think it's going to be a very difficult season for Southampton. And I'm going for Southampton to uh, to go as the third team. Okay, very good. Clive, it's been a pleasure chatting to you. Thanks so much for coming on the show this morning. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. That's uh, Clive Allen there on the line. Big reaction to that and uh, a big reaction earlier on before we let you go to our Sound of Sport comments. Shifty Lad has been in touch to say the sound of the roar on Tuesday first race in Cheltenham and the sound when the commentator says the favourite is moving to the front coming oh, down the hill yes, in Cheltenham. That is the, the, that down the hill at Cheltenham when a, a fancied horse moves into contention there is that, yeah. And John Claffey says a long pot and snooker, which uh, doesn't sound bad at all. Right, OTBAM has been brought to you this morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. We're back tomorrow morning from half past seven, where myself and Ashley are going to look ahead to the All-Ireland Senior Camogie final between Cork and Kilkenny on Sunday. We'll have the return of the crappy quiz and much more besides as well. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.